I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We're very pleased today to have Kathy Strain with us. Tom, would you like to jump in and kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we go too far, I just want to say thank you for everybody that sent in the questions. And if you, uh, you know, if you like the show, click like and subscribe, and you can support us you know, with Patreon. And the link is in the description. Um, and I want to say this is going to be a real treat. Kathy, thank you for joining us and being on the show today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And the question I asked you just before we went on the air was, uh, I guess you've had an encounter, but also you are an archaeologist for the U.S. Forest Service. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what your job description is? Oh, sure. I am the forest archaeologist and tribal relations program manager for the Stanislaus National Forest uh, in California. And it means that I am the head uh, person who handles the history, the prehistory, and the living tribes um, that still use the, our national forests. And so essentially, my job, well, my my other archaeologists, my my that work below, that work with me, but I'm in charge of them. Um, we before the Forest Service does a project on the ground, like disturbs the soil, you know, cuts trees, those kinds of things. We make sure that there are, there aren't sites in the way, there aren't uh, things that are really significant to history that may get damaged by that activity, and I also assist the the tribes um, that gather plants and other resources off of our national forest. So it it really is a lot of fun. Do you do any historical research into areas where the tribes have, you could say, okay, this, this particular section of this forest, this tribe was active there, you know, 200 years ago, that sort of thing? Yep, that that's what I do. Okay. <laughs> um, so it makes... I, I would imagine it makes your job a little easier to, you're saying, okay, you guys are getting ready to do disturb the soil or do some digging over there. And how would you go about, um, you know, do, do you dig the soil and do you bring a team in there to look for artifacts or what's this yeah, what exactly? We, yeah, we, we do something that's called pedestrian survey. So we walk the ground um and look for things that we know that that occur on this forest we have a lot of bedrock mortars which are kind of like grinding cups um of course then there's lots of lithics you know um projectile points that kind of thing 
And, um, you know, if we don't have very good ground cover, then we might stick a couple of shovels in. But it, generally uh, here, our soils are pretty shallow. And so, um, and the, there's enough, um, enough that we can see the ground that we don't have to usually stick a shovel in the ground. Okay. And kind of moving in the direction of our topic here, Bigfoot, have you... As, a, as an archaeologist for the Forest Service, have you had any, um, I'm trying to think how to say this, information on the tribes, any of the tribes that you've studied and worked with, uh, current or historically, that points to Bigfoot? Oh, yes. Um, in particular, um, I work with the Miwok tribe and the Washoe tribe. And the Miwok have tons of stories about um, Bigfoot. They have ancient stories as well as modern stories. And I've even been in the field with them. <laughs> one time we were doing a, uh, a field check on a meadow and, and one of the elders had what he believed to have been experienced with a Bigfoot uh, during that event. And so um, their traditional stories are uh, tied to landscape features that we have on my national forest or in in the general area, and so uh, it's it's fascinating to study because they have a have a deep relationship um, with Bigfoot. How do the ancient stories, the details of the ancient stories, compare with the modern stories, the modern accounts, and do you see uh, like repeating patterns or or um, information that would be the same in the in the past as which is what you're hearing today oh yes um in particular i think one of the more interesting things that i've uh discovered is in uh so the older older stories always talked about that there were certain bigfoots that were good and certain bigfoots that were bad and they had different names um for them so a good bigfoot is yayali and um, I can't pronounce the, the word that means he's a bad guy. And that actually is the same belief that they have today. In fact, um, I had a phone call not all that long ago um, from a guy from the Washoe tribe, and he had seen me on television. And um, I don't I guess I had never had a conversation with him about Bigfoot, or, or he wasn't ready to tell me before. But he said, um, I just want to let let you know that you know about you have a bad Bigfoot on your side of the mountains. The Washoe typically um, they're on the somewhat on the uh, eastern slope of the Sierras, um, but Lake Tahoe area down to my national forest. And he said, "Well, you know, you got two good ones and you have one bad one." And I said, "Oh, really?" And he told me their names, and of course I didn't have a pen anywhere near me, so I couldn't write it down, and of course can't remember anything. And so, um, and I found that to be very interesting. And I said, well, how do you know that he's bad? And he was just like, well, because they do bad things, you know, and they have the, a traditional story related to a cave that I have in my forest where that cave belonged to the bad Bigfoot and he would eat um, eat people and throw their bodies down the, the cave shaft. And that is actually a true fact. We have a cave, that very cave, and it has human remains that were collected from that cave in the 1960s. And so um, there's a law called the Native American Graves Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, I probably 
butchered that. But anyway, um, we tried to give those remains back to the local tribe and they wouldn't have it. And I said, well, why not? And they go, well, that's not our people. We weren't stupid enough to let Bigfoot catch us to eat us. And so those are somebody else. And so we tried to do DNA, but it didn't come out conclusive. But the age of the remains did prove that they were not Miwok. Wow. So there actually are good ones and and bad ones. And apparently there's a way to distinguish. Well, obviously, you know, the bad ones when they do bad things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do the good ones do? Well, they can be a protector. And that's that's typically what I find, and especially in California, that the good ones are the protectors of the forest, the protectors of nature, you know, bring balance to um, the earth kind of thing, you know, like, you know, a healthy forest has a healthy Bigfoot looking after it because he's he's caring for it. And in a lot of ways, we, you know, what they believed is that we're we haven't allowed him to fulfill his role. And that's why our forests are in such bad condition and why we have these gigantic wildfires and and all that that goes with it is because we've kind of cut him out of the the cycle of how we manage it. And I, and, you know, of course, I always make a funny where, well, if he wants to do the work, you know, I'm more than happy to meet with him and get him restarted on whatever it is that he needs to do. And they just kind of, you know, like, all right, Kathy. Um, so, but, it, and, you know, in a lot of tribes, they also believe that once Bigfoot, uh, is discovered that that's the end of this age, that a whole new age then starts uh, from that moment. And I've various tribes have told me that 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 equates to the earth ending or this, you know, we we go away. Uh, and other tribes have told me, no, it just it's a higher level of enlightenment that happens when when that occurs. So some tribes believe it's really, really bad. And some people some tribes believe it'll it'll be a good thing. So. Just before we got on the air, you had mentioned that you also had an encounter of your own. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I was in uh, Oklahoma. Um, I had been invited by the NAWAC to uh, a, an area that they've been doing work for many years, and it's called Area X, and it's not Area X to be ominous. It would just, they named their research areas you know, X, Y, Z, and this just happens to be, you know, X. And so um, they had been telling me about this area for a while and um, just can't get away, you know, my kids in school and all that stuff. And one uh, year, uh, uh, 2012, I told my husband, I said, well, let's just make a trip out of it. We hadn't seen his mom for a while. His mom lived in Texas and we could just make a, a little vacation out of it. And so we we went. It was May of 2012, and uh, it's probably probably one of the hardest roads ever. And I'm a Forest Service archaeologist, and so we have some awful awful roads. And anybody who's driven on Forest Service roads knows we have some barely believable that they are a road. And this I have no idea really, what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I've. Uh, so I've been on a lot, but this road into X was probably the worst 
road I've ever been on in my entire life. I, th- I thought we there was just no way we were going to make it. And then somebody was going to have to come get us. And we're, you know, miles away from any uh, civilization. And thankfully, there were people that were expecting us. And we were going in with one other person that had his, his own car. So we figured, you know, either way, one way we'd get it out. And um, so we get in there and nothing happens the first day. It was just boring. And, and the second day is where everything happened. And there's four cabins there. And we had spent the afternoon running around like a bunch of hillbillies, I guess. But something was throwing rocks onto the tin roofs of the cabins. And you run over to one and then a rock would get thrown on the other cabin. You'd run over there and then another rock would get thrown on another cabin. So we're just running around, running around. And I finally got tired of it. I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, we're not going to accomplish anything doing it this way. And so I stayed behind and I'm just, you know, you just talked a little bit out loud. You know, I have kind of a high voice. Um, You know, I thought maybe that could be interesting because not many women go in there. And so we're sitting there. I mean, I'm standing there and the guys finally come back and there's five of us there total, including my husband. And we sit down and uh, there's this big old uh, fire pit there, but we didn't have a fire because it's, you know, summer and May, it's hot and it was still daylight. Uh, you know, it was in the like late afternoon and we started to hear something walking and we thought it was uh, this little fox that you'd like to hang around with us because we give it scraps and stuff. And um, I look up and there's this place called the bottleneck. So this whole area is just uh, overgrown, um, thick, thick trees on the ground. There's green briar that catches your feet. There's you know, not much clear land. You have to weave and bob to get through the landscape because you're moving branches or you're stepping over dead logs and all the stuff that goes with that. And uh, I am looking towards what we call the bottleneck because it used to be a long time ago a driveway, but it had since been overgrown with vegetation, but it was still relatively clear of trees. It had grasses and stuff, but, but no trees in it. And there they are. They're walking right at us. There's two of them, a big one and a little one. And I jumped up and I go, there they are. And I start running towards them. And of course, that startled them to no get out. And they ended up, they then turned and bolted up the the slope that is behind the cabin. Like, like, unbelievable. It's like they had been on a bungee and had been suddenly released from me, they were as quiet as a mouse. They were, they were like ghosts almost, how how they just floated as quickly as possible going up that hillside. And uh, there was four of us total that saw exactly the same thing with one member looking uh, at, towards the outhouse or something. Um, he just didn't see it. So, um, and then that just started that whole week was, by the end of that week, uh, I, I thought I had... I was going to have to go to therapy for all the stuff that happened. It was just constant something banging on the cabin, making noises, throwing rocks, um, whistling, tree knocks. Uh, it was just a, a, a week of just unbelievable, uh, unbelievable activity. What did your family think about all this? Oh, they they think it's cool. I mean, they they all believe in Bigfoot. So um, they've outside of well, Bob and I, of course, have had uh, several experiences. Um, 
but yeah, they they fully believe that I saw one and they're real animals. Right. I'm I'm just thinking if all this activity is going on, I mean, was anybody on edge? Were you nervous? Um Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I at first when after this, I kind of went into this little bit of shock of just realizing that you can't win this because if one of those and and the, it was a big and a small one, but they've seen bigger ones on the on that general area, and it kind of dawned on me that if one of those big ones just picked me up and took off, there's nothing anybody could have done about it because they're as unbelievably fast they're huge the ones that i thought the ones that i saw i thought were younger ones so like the the little one i thought was maybe you know what we consider a, a 12 year old something like that and the bigger one i i thought it was more of a of a teenage female and even then they were huge in the sense of how wide and bulky and obviously very very muscular and so if you got a uh, an average male that we think is seven foot tall, you just, you just can't, you you got nothing on them. I mean, they, they could sweep in, grab whatever they wanted to and be gone. And there's just, you'd just be sitting there going, well, I guess, you know, Kathy's a gunner now because you'd never find me. And so it was just that kind of shock that kind of was like, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should, shouldn't be here. Maybe we need to go home. But, um, we stuck it out, and I and I just ended up telling everybody, if you ever find my body, look at my hands, because hopefully there'll be a, at least a clump of hair in it. I tried to fight, you know, my way down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you see these two. They're coming. They're walking towards you, and they, they obviously they see you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Once I started, I made the – I yelled at them, and I, I ran at them. And, and then that sent them – Turn, you know, they kind of turned heels and took off running. What yeah. color was the hair on them? Um, they were very dark, um, blackish, very, very dark brown or black. And it was the sun was was on them, and so it was hard to tell the the difference. But it was just very, very dark, and they looked exactly like Patty, exactly. Oh, just okay. One one solid color. And they're very bulky. Yes, powerful muscular not wow. heavy not like fat or anything like that but muscular so the one when i got to stopped myself you know i started running so i ended up at the bottom of the slope and i could see them still running up the hill and i just focused on the bigger one to take in every detail that i could possibly get and the thing had put its arms next to its side and it was doing that kind of uh uh marathon runner type of movement with its arms and i could see the the thick thighs with the muscle on it going up into its its buttocks and just it was nothing but muscle muscle there wasn't you know it was it was pretty amazing it was just all muscle now this was um your first encounter right Mm -hmm. which is a pretty i mean that's absolutely incredible a very significant one um have you had any other encounters yes so uh i had uh the following year in 2013 bob and i were so um wanting to have that experience again because it was just even though we were traumatized um 
it was just worth it, you know, in the sense of having that experience. So the the following year, 2013, we agreed that um, he would go with a friend for three weeks there and I would stay and watch the kids. And then when he would come back and I would go for three weeks um, while he watched the kid, the kids. And um, so my first week there, um, I was sitting on the back porch just trying to catch a breeze because, boy, was it hot. It was June. And I saw this tree branch um, wobbling. And I was like, oh, okay, well, there's something in the, on that branch. And, and I saw this dark black I thought it was a chimpanzee. I literally was thinking to myself, I'm at the zoo. There's a chimp, you know, a small chimp uh, on that tree branch. And I said, yeah, it's going to jump over to the next tree. And that's exactly what this thing did. And then I, of course, then I got Kathy for crying out loud. There's not a chimp loose in Oklahoma. That's ridiculous. And so I, I said, oh, my God, I just saw this baby, baby Bigfoot in this tree. And this is where it went. And we ran down there. And we could all we could, we were we were just so slow compared to these things. It had already moved so far along. All you could do is see all the other tree branches that were still bouncing up and down. That it had, you know, basically it was running through the trees, you know. And uh, later on that week, one of the other members of the team saw the same same thing. Yeah, they are absolutely incredibly fast. Um, it's as if the, you know what I've described was the motion was it's almost like it's over before it started they're just yeah what do you think how do you you think it's just because they're out in the wilderness and they're, they're in the wild they're constantly moving so they're going to be very naturally athletic and muscular do you think that's pretty much the reason why they're so quick and agile oh yeah I mean they're um they're built for their environment. I mean, all animals adapt, to, you know, adapt or perish. So you have to have the best qualities to live in that environment. And so the need to think about how far they likely walk in a day just to get the resources that they need to survive. I mean, that's for humans. Humans don't walk 20 miles in a day. I mean, I mean, maybe there's some that do, but very few of us. And so an animal that has to walk that far is going to get skills that we don't have. And part of that adaption is, you know, they have a that flexible foot so that they can, you know, go up hillsides a lot easier. They're all muscle because they're constantly moving. They probably, you know, the food resources that they have are not fatty at all, but they provide the protein that they need to survive. But you may have to travel, you know, three miles one direction for one thing, three miles in another direction for something else. And so, um, yeah, I think they're perfectly adapted. And for us, you know, we're not surprised. You know, our brain is so wired to see things that um, that we know. We don't like seeing things we don't know. And so, um, I think if we probably, they probably could in a burst probably would be extremely, extremely fast. But for us to see something that looks like us be so fast, I think that's part of hurts our brains to get get us all wrapped around it. Because how did, how is something on two feet that 
able to do the things that they're doing and and it's just how they evolve they they evolve to be the best of the best of the best yeah and that that really makes sense and that's a good point because you know you see these creatures that are you know 1100 1500 pounds and you'd think they'd be lumbering beasts and they're anything but they're very the quick and very agile yeah and it's and it's i equate that to i i won't use any names but I, there's a, a gentleman that i know that's a little bit more on the heavy set side but lord you you get him going and he is unbelievably fast and it's, so it's just deceiving you know that what you think of somebody should be able to do or some animal should be able to do um and then when they exceed your your expectations and your your it's your brain that's you know going what what i didn't expect that yeah well that's a good point what came first for you? Um, did you believe in in Bigfoot before you saw it, or did you have to see it? What what evidence and what brought you to the point that you said, okay, these things are real? Um, well, I, I am probably one of the weirdest backgrounds. <laughs> I only became an archaeologist because of Bigfoot. So... When I was a little girl, I saw Legend of Boggy Creek, and um, I just was instantaneously fascinated with what this thing was. And my family is originally from Texas and Arkansas and that, those areas, and so you know we would go there a lot. And um, so I kept thinking to myself, oh man, every time we go out in the woods, we could have this opportunity. And so around, I think it was fifth grade, I asked my teacher what I had to do to study Bigfoot for a living. And she said, well, I'd go into anthropology. That That's probably what it is, you know, like an ape. And I said, great. And so that's the, the path I started on. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to be an anthropologist. And, you know, I figured it out. You know, nobody was going to pay me to study Bigfoot. The rest of science didn't, um, didn't believe in it. But it was always interesting whenever I had a biology or an anthropology class, I, there was always at least one page dedicated to the Patterson-Gimlin film. You know, they would always conclude it was a hoax, but it's interesting that that, uh, uh, that was always included in those, those scholarly books. Um, but because I was already on the path of anthropology, I already loved it. It was already a natural fit for me because um, we were always, uh, my family, when we went on vacations, we went to national parks, national forests. We never went to like Disneyland or any of that stuff. We were always camping and driving to the next historical site or all those things that go with it. So that's the way it ended. I mean, it ended up well. And I also was uh, born and raised in Porterville, California. And the Tule River Indians um, have a reservation above the town and are in the foothills above the town. And they have uh, some rock art there. And I saw it. So I think I saw it in high school, as I recall. But I, nobody told me what the pictographs were about. And it wasn't until um, a couple of years later that I was up there with a professor. And she told me, oh, they have the, the these people believe in Bigfoot and this is their creation story and pointed the stuff out. And I still have even have a photo of that day that we were there. It's actually kind of amazing. And so I said, Oh my goodness, Native Americans believe in Bigfoot. Oh, this is even better. I can mix, 
you know, the two. And so I always, when um, I would meet with tribes as part of my job, you know, during breaks or whatever, I would start asking questions, you know, like, so do you guys believe in Bigfoot? And if you do, you know, can you tell me about it? And um, that's just how I kind of mixed the two all my life is this, that fascination with that, if Native Americans believe in Bigfoot and they have all these very old stories and these old pictographs and stuff, why why doesn't science pay attention to that? Why doesn't the rest of the world go, of course Bigfoot's real? You know, even though I haven't seen one myself, would you, would, what are these people doing, making this up, you know? And so um, so that was my path of how I got it. So I, I had believed in Bigfoot since I was probably seven or eight, and then it took all that time uh, for me to then actually have my own experience. What about the, um, have you done any studies where tribes all throughout North America have a word for Bigfoot or a story, a legend, a lore of Bigfoot long before the time of mass communications? Have oh, you yes. looked into that at all? Yes, I actually have a book about it. Uh, it's called, um, now it's going to jump out of my head. I can't believe that that just happened. <laughs> it's big, uh, Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, uh, Bigfoot and Native Culture. And it's a collection of stories from throughout uh, Canada, Alaska, and all of North America. And it's the traditional stories associated with the tribes based on what we call a uh, cultural area. And so, um, you know, like the Plains is considered a cultural area, this southeastern part of Calif uh, of America. And then uh, there's an appendix at the uh, end that has the traditional name, the tribe, and what the what the word means. And so there's hundreds of different names that tribes have. Yeah, and I find that interesting because, again, this predates, I mean, it goes back not centuries, but millennia. Oh, yeah. It must have been and something. Have to, yeah, that's something you have to think about is that um, if all these tribes were describing the same animal, across the entire United States, you know, that's not, you know, it, they didn't invent an animal here in California and somehow get it spread to the thousands and thousands of Native Americans that had different languages. It's not like the Yokits could tell, you know, one person something and then hope it gets all the way over to the Eastern coast and we all be united in believing in this creature. I mean, that's just ridiculous. They, they talked about things that were in their environment, animals that were there for them to see. And traditional stories are meant for teaching. They're meant to pass on through, um, through time the, the, what values the, the tribe has to the next generation. They didn't have written words. And so the story lays out um, what they're wanting to save to make sure the, the next generation has the same belief systems. And most tribes, you know, they, they supported smaller groups during most of the year. And then the winners, when they all came together to be in the main village, because that's when you start, you know, you, you can't hunt or do much in that time period. And so you're coming together in the winter time and then passing, telling those stories around the campfires. 
So <clears throat> quick question regarding uh, your current employment. How does the uh, Forest Service, do they have, uh, do you have any kind of um, feedback or, or uh, trying to think how to, how to say this, but do you have any official position as a Forest Service employee on Bigfoot? And if somebody was to walk into, I'm assuming you probably work in a ranger station or something, somebody to walk in and ask a question, would you be able to go in and say, well, here's what I know and that sort of yeah. thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. My bosses know that I'm on television. I, I, I'm on a series on Friday nights called The Proof is Out There. They know about that. They, they approve the book. Um, and I often get that somebody comes to the front desk. I work in the main office. And so um, they probably get a little more of this up in the higher ranger districts. But they go, this guy's got something to say. And I go, okay. And I go down and talk to him, write down his name. We've had many, many emails come in. They could just come into our regular Forest Service website. And they forward all of them to me. And I take care of it. And um, and we've had some some pretty good ones of this poor, not, oh gosh, uh, just before COVID, this poor man and his son had a horrible experience, um, just scared the bejeebers out of them. They were hunting and they saw a Bigfoot in an area where we get a lot of Bigfoot sightings um, and decided, oh man, this is, we can't do this. And they started to basically freaked out, was throwing all their stuff in the car and one of our rangers happened to come on and said oh my goodness are you okay what's going on and they go oh my god we just saw this thing happen and just uh, we can't stay here and he was able to give them my name and said you know when you when you feel like it please talk to this lady and and they called my house and i was just like and so my husband talked to him and, and wrote down everything that happened and um, and and the guy, that poor guy, I still feel really bad for him. He goes, I'm never going back in the forest ever again. And my husband was like, no, really, this is really rare for you to see when I don't think you're going to have this experience probably again. He goes, oh, no, uh, something will happen to me again. And so, um, so yeah, that's not, it, it's common knowledge on the forest. And I've even gotten a couple calls from the our, a neighboring forest um, as well where they go, well, we, we don't know what to tell you here. Contact Kathy. That was my next question was, do you ever, because you're federal, so it would be quite okay for other districts, even outside of the state of California, if they wanted to, I'm assuming, contact you for information. And um, what do you do? Do you take a report? Do you write it down? Um, yeah, I, I take a report and I write it down, get their contact information. And if it's close to me, I'm, I'll likely take care of it. Um, but if it's in a location too far away from me, then, and I know a lot of people, I, I try to pass it on to somebody in that area because these are the ones you want. You want the the ones that just happened, not not the stuff that was 40, 50 years ago. You know, you want the, oh my, you know, this literally just happened to me this afternoon or yesterday, this is what happened. And so I pass them on and and it's, it's interesting that, um, uh, you know the variety but t they tend to come in at least for my national forest in certain areas um so like for one summer we'll have a whole bunch of activity in one area and then it'll be like five more years before that area comes back up again as having a lot of activity so kind of like it moves where 
where I'm getting all the calls from, you know, like one year it was Cherry Lake. I got like seven or eight calls about that. Then I didn't didn't have any for three years. And the next big wave was up at Clark Fork. And it was like, that's so far away from each other. You know, that's a good 50 miles in distance. Um, so, you know, how is that related? And then one year, gosh, Donnell Lake was the worst. We got like 30 30 calls about that one because there was something just making people's lives miserable. That was the mean one, I guess. But he was routinely um, tearing up camps, uh, throwing rocks at people, um, causing commotions at nighttime where people couldn't sleep. And, and that only happened that one time. All the rest of them were just regular encounters where, you know, you happened to see it or that kind of thing. It wasn't as scary. So... What do you guys do in the situation where you have one of the mean ones tearing up camps? I mean, what's what's your response? How do you uh, how do you deal with that? Did, you know, you don't have an animal control officer go out yes. there. And <laughs> well, it's interesting because word uh, community word of mouth is probably the most effective way where we just kind of get it out where, you know, maybe this year that that's not the place to go. And, and, and interestingly, there's this one place on this forest where even my own um, uh, ranger, I guess you'd call him, um, he told me never to go there. He said, oh, no, we, we had so many problems there that essentially they just kind of let the road get slightly washed out so that people would think twice of going into that area. And then, of course, you know, that just makes me want to go, you know, in there. And I think we took Cliff Berkman with us. Um, when we went in there, nothing happened, but he, he was pretty adamant about, you know, just, just don't go in there because the, he said the devil lived in there. So. So, um, have there ever been any reports of people being injured by one of these things? Um, no, not that I have ever received. Most of them are just, you know, you know, that sudden sighting and you're scared and they, they, you know, ignore you as much as possible. Or maybe they just they're just going through the area and, and it's a brief encounter. So um, I, I would say, no, I never have had one of those come to me. OK. And we've heard reports about them coming into areas. I'm thinking about even here in Oregon where they would cross a river and go into the campgrounds and ransack the uh, garbage cans. Have, <laughs> have have you guys, any reports of that? Have you guys ever heard of that? Um, we've had, um, we definitely had some activity near a campground that um, it was actually very interesting. There was a bunch of tribal people there at that campground that weekend. And um, it was, it was kind of, kind of like fortuitous in my mind and something started to make a ruckus but it sounded like they were trying to tear into the trash cans and one of the elders told said yaya yaya go away and i guess according to the people that were there and told me this all the sounds stopped and they didn't have any more problems so and that was their traditional name for him and so i i they just kind of hinted to me that just by speaking his uh, his name, that that would cause him to calm down. Yeah. Well, you're the second person that has said that. Uh, we, we have a guy up in Canada uh, 
Native American or First Nations, who's kind of said the same thing, which is interesting, um, but they can understand nominally yeah. what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't there, but I just had the tribal members telling me that that's what happened. But um, that area before had had some problems uh, even years ago of having lots of Bigfoot sightings and um, and activity, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if that if that happened. Yeah. Now, um, you know, you talked about sometimes the uh, Forest Service will let it. You know, that's going to take a little bit of time, may, maybe a season or two. But um, do do you know if the Forest Service ever says, "All right, look, this is a bad area. We're just going to cordon it off with you know logs or boulders or dirt or anything like that." Uh, not due to Bigfoot, no, no, because it's 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 uh, in general most national forests are open to camping wherever you can get to, and so um, we have, you know, areas that are unsafe because of other reason. Of course, have blocked those off because maybe there's a, you know, uh, the road is gone and you'll die because you know you didn't see it coming as being gone but but not due to bigfoot now we just we discourage if there's a problem going on that we think is bear or bigfoot or something else we just discourage people from from camping in those locations we suggest other areas for them to go oh interesting uh and bears do i have been camping when uh bears come in and they definitely ransack the garbage cans and the picnic tables, incidentally. <laughs> yeah, and they do. And um, one time I, 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 we were doing a project in the forest and I had uh, one of my, uh, there was volunteers and we were doing archaeology. We, I don't, I should caution that I don't do Bigfooting on government time. So if somebody wants to talk to me about it, then I go off the clock. Or if it's very brief, you know, I, I'll tell them I'll call them after hours. So I just want to make that very clear. Um, but we were out doing this project with volunteers. And I had one of, of the volunteers in the middle of the night thought she heard something. And the next morning, all she had, uh, had made a bunch of boiled eggs for the, you know, the, her time we were going to be there like four days. And something had opened up her um, ice chest. And had taken all but like three eggs left, left or at least three, you know, kind of thing, and had gotten the lid of her ice chest back down perfectly without getting any dirt or anything. So we knew it wasn't a raccoon, and we we figured out later that it was a bear that had done it. But I really teased her pretty hard that a Bigfoot had um, gotten into her ice chest and was considerate enough to leave her some food. And I mean, she was not happy with me. She couldn't sleep for three days. <laughs> <laughs> But but she's okay with the bear doing that, right? Well, we we made her then move her ice chest because we had told everybody you can't you have to keep them in the bear safe lockers kind of thing. So, but um, we don't have bear. I know there's a lot of people that are really really scared of bears, but we really don't have bear attacks. You know, they don't tear up tents or. Or any, unless you keep a bunch of food in there, then they'll tear into your camp. But we don't. Our bears are not going to kill you. They're, they're just not interested in humans as, as food. They're interested in your food, food. The so. only time, every time I have an encounter with, and here in Oregon, that's where I live, we have black bears. That's it. 
mm-hmm. is you usually see the back end of the bear as it's scooting away because it just knew that it discovered that you were there and poof, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's well, that's typical black bear. Yeah, I've seen a lot of bear in my time because we have a nature, a preserve, a hunting um, preserve, so you can't hunt in there. And all the bears have figured it out. That's where they got to go. So, and they are smart. They, they're, yeah. you know, animals. Yeah, they figure this stuff out. And I got to say, I love bears. Mm-hmm. Black bears are they're, they're to me that you know, I saw one recently crossing the road. Just a real cute bear. Very nice, silky, clean coat. Nice blonde snout. Just a typical. Black bear, just a real treat seeing them yeah. kind of go across. I love, across I love the all wildlife, so yeah. except for snakes. I hate snakes. Snakes? Yeah. <laughs> I almost grabbed two rattlesnakes by accident one time, and it's a long story, but I didn't. Nope. I was glad, and I went eight feet straight in the air. Um, so, have you had any other encounters? yourself besides the the ones in Oklahoma what about anything in California um in California I've had uh seen uh footprints uh in one of the the funniest one I've had two that were both when I was doing an archaeology survey and I said whoa what what in the world is this and so that kind of was you know startling in the sense that it, it was obvious that something had crossed in this area just before I had gotten there and I could never figure it out which way where it went because it seemed like that was very fresh but it, it didn't matter they moved obviously faster than me but um, I've been had heard tons of howls California at least my experience is they communicate through howling and um, in particular we recorded uh, the Lake Tahoe scream um, that sometimes they used to use on uh, Finding Bigfoot uh, was recorded um, in the Lake Tahoe area. And I worked with a witness to get that because there was just so much of these howls and screams going on in this area. And for me, it was because they were trying to communicate and they had to get up and above the din you could just hear in the in the faint background of the casinos and stuff, but this this was in the mountains that surround uh, that area, and and here in Sonora and most places that I've bigfooted in in California, the howls and the screams are fairly common, as well as wood knocks, and so those have been the, my primary experiences. So I've never had a sighting in the state of California. All, all my sightings have only been from Oklahoma. I got to say, it's kind of encouraging to hear you talk about the howls, though, because that's Hands down. I mean, I've only seen them one time, but I've heard the howls, and they're they're unique. There's nothing remotely that sounds like these things. No, they're and, they're very distinctive. Yeah, very distinctive. I heard the uh, and another one. I imagine they do it in California as well. Kind of a scream bark, just a very like a burst of scream and a bark. All at once lasts about a second and a half. Mm. Have have you heard that? No, I haven't heard that one. And then the, I I don't know if you know this or not, but the the, um, Sierra sounds, uh, Ron Moorhead, um, that was actually recorded on my national forest. So that's where they were camping. And so we kind of have a long history of these experiences, but I, I have not heard that. And I, 
I don't know what I would think about that if I heard that. The the howls are bad enough as it is. Yeah, they're uh, well. The scream barks. I, um, my wife and I were camping, and uh, we we heard those about two in the morning. Then again, about three in the morning. And yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's interesting. And the dogs, some, some dogs in various camps heard it as well. So I'm like, yeah, I got witnesses. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oh, and that's that's kind of interesting, too, because, um, like I said, I, you know, my children were raised, basically, I have one that's very enthusiastic about Bigfoot and another one that I, he hates it when people come up to me and talk about Bigfoot or anything, it just drives him crazy. And, you know, you're always going to get, you you know, one kid's always going to be different. And a long time ago, we actually lived in a different house, but I got tired of us having to shovel snow and so i said we got to move to a different elevation here but one summer we had the window open and my oldest son heard those howls and he he goes mom that sounds like it's just coming up the hill you know and he kind of pointed to where he thought it was coming from and that ended up being um quite a summer for that we found prints we found what we thought was a nest that uh, had just been constructed. The uh, These are little, you know, you'd have a house on like five acres and then the next house would be, um, you know, on an acre. And there's it's so it's all got forest service and trees all over the place. And uh, I putting flyers out, you know, to, uh, putting them on, you know, billboards or putting them on, um, you know, the um power poles of you know have you guys been having any experiences and i just got flooded with people um complaining about something howling something doing this something doing that and so i started an operation essentially just at nighttime i'd go up there and we take turns rotate people just sitting up there and getting what we could and um it was that was an interesting summer we had lots of howls and then you know it never happened again it was and it still hasn't so it's very odd, you know, there's there's got to be some some seasonality or some sort of pattern that we're not recognizing that a Bigfoot might come through an area um, that he's been to before, but maybe it's been five years or 10 years because he's got a, a, a way that he moves through the landscape, you know, or something to that effect. I'm talking to a person now that it appears every spring or every fall, maybe it's every fall, um, He's having something come through. He has a remote piece of property and he's found prints, but it's taking all of the apple trees off the tallest part of his tree. And so, um, or plums, was it plums? I don't remember. No, I think it's apples. But it's happened now twice in roughly the same time period. And, you know, the tree is, you have to be seven foot tall to get to the top of those apples. And so we're in contact and we're going to be, testing this to see is this going can we predict when he's going to come back through the area and the prints were clearly bigfoot prints there's no doubt about it you you touched on something that i wanted to ask and that is um you know you're an archaeologist so you know i want to ask about physical evidence uh, bones if you've seen any bones or heard of bones or if you've been in contact with uh people that are you know maybe uh, lateral uh, positions and other ranger stations throughout the country. But before I get to that, I want to ask a little bit about the nest. What 
How did you know it was a Bigfoot nest? Can you describe it? Sure. It was, um, well, I, I can tell you, I, I can't prove that it was a Bigfoot nest. I just suspected that it was because it was so unusual. It was a large tree bent over. So you you can you imagine like a, uh, you're taking the top of a pine, but this one wasn't a pine. Um, and you're taking it and you're p- putting it over. And then there was this big, huge rock that had been moved. I found the location of where it had come from. And it was set on the end of this tree to keep it from flapping back up and being a tree. You know, So it was making sure that it was a curved structure. Then there were sticks that had we somebody or had come through this area previously and had done some pruning or done some sort of of work and there were some dead branches so the the smaller branches of the tree that of pine had long died so these were kind of old like probably six or seven years old so they were clean of any other um leaves and whatever had done it had taken these sticks and wove them through um, the the bent branches of the tree to kind of create um, a windbreak or a shelter or something to that effect. And inside where you could crawl in, they had taken uh, fresh um, fronds of, of trees, had taken the smaller branches off and then created like a pad down at the bottom something to lay on interesting now when you're looking at this shelter or whatever it is um did you see any bigfoot uh like footprints or any other signs around there yeah there was a print um we that's how we and it went right to the structure and so um and so you know, thinking that I had the opportunity to get some website in Tuolumne County and you can see the pictures and stuff that's on there. Um, I documented it with photographs and then we excavated uh, the pads down at the bottom, hoping we could get some hair or something from that. But it it ended up that I don't believe it ever got used because I think we interrupted um the process of it being used. I mean, I think it was very, very fresh in the sense and it, nobody got to use it because we found it too soon. And after it gets found, my stink was all over it because I went inside and was, you know, excavating it. And so I didn't get any hairs or any other uh, evidence to suggest what had constructed it. No, it's very interesting. Um, have you... Do you talk to any other uh, people either in the Forest Service or BLM or any of the other land management agencies who have an interest like you do and kind of, you know, pursue that interest? Um, It's getting more than it used to. Um, In the old days, nobody would really talk about it kind of thing. But I think it's just just like you see more Bigfoot things on television and stuff. It's getting to be more um, accepted. The only interesting thing I ever had uh, versus, you know, another um, employee is we had a very, very large fire on our forest back in 2013. And I was in the field dealing with the fire when a Fish and Wildlife Service person was in our office and he was there to, you know, talk about 
because we have some threatened endangered species and he was talking to our biologist and he asked to to speak with me and uh our biologist went well why do you want to talk to her for and he goes well i just i want to talk to her about bigfoot and what you know just tell her a few things and um you know that let her know that you know us and Fish and Wildlife Service, we're, we're ready. You know, when they prove this thing is real, we're going to move on it and make sure it gets its protection. And so I never got to talk to him because I was in the field. And but the biologist relayed to me what the person had said. And I was I was actually quite astonished by it. I was like, he he told you all this because it just is, you know, job protection. Don't want anybody to think you're crazy. But yeah, he goes, yeah, this guy was just like he really wanted to talk to you. And I, and I said, well, if he comes in again, you know, just let me know and I'll more than happy to talk to him about it. So that's the only time I've had that I can think of where somebody, you know, I get general questions and, you know, employees go, oh, you're Kathy Strain, you, you believe in Biffy. Oh, great. Well, that's cool. But nobody who said, um, as an agency person, I'm, I'm willing to pursue this and, and make sure that, you know, we do the best science for it. I've never had anybody else do that. I think it's interesting, though, that somebody else did contact you. Yeah. Well, listen, um, really appreciate the time tonight. And uh, if if it's OK with you, we'd like to chat with you briefly uh, once we're off the air. So, sure. um yeah, let's uh, we'll go ahead and do that. And uh, folks, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, near Orchard, Washington, early 1960s, a man from Orchard named Lopez told Roger Patterson while driving home on a foggy night with his head out the window of his car, he drove slowly around an obstruction on the road. It turned out to be a jet black creature, eight to nine feet tall, with a flat face and no neck. It just looked at him as he went by. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Uh, I don't know where Milo is yet. He hasn't responded, so he must have something going on. But I wanted to bring up something, first of all, before we kind of get going, that's really interesting. You know, we've talked about the Minnesota Iceman in past uh, episodes. I just got a book called Neanderthal, The Strange Ca- or the Strange Saga of the Minnesota Iceman, written by Bernard Hovelmans. And it's actually very interesting. I haven't read a lot of it yet, but... And I want to bring this up to you, Forrest, maybe for our next... Uh, you can inform us about this. He and Ivan Sanderson were discussing. He went to see Sanderson, and that's how when, when they learned about the Iceman uh, from somebody that Hoovelman's knew or, or one of them knew. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, they were talking about the different possibilities, what it could be. This is before they actually went and examined it. Um, and they were talking about, you know, they, somebody could have gotten a, a, a chimpanzee corpse. They could have stretched it and done all these bizarre things to it. But Hoovelman's, he points out, he says, all of this was perfectly possible, but Ivan seemed to have forgotten one point. As I pointed out earlier, there are no clear-skinned large chimpanzees. I've never really heard that. Can you, you know about that? What what clear-skinned means? Well, he's referring, probably referring to uh, the the pale skin. You'll see that sometimes on um, 
uh, young chimpanzees, and their face, uh, faces will be uh, pink skin rather than the darker skin. As they age, they get uh, darker. And then, and then it's kind of the reverse thing that the older they get, you'll, you'll start seeing the modeling on their faces where it actually is, it, it's kind of like us when we start getting age spots on our faces, their age spots are actually lighter. You know, and it's it's like a white spotting all over their face. So you can oftentimes tell the age of those, and even macaques do it the same thing. That um, you'll start seeing this uh, white um, uh, round circles appear on their face faces. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting. He he was discussing that you know if somebody had such a specimen, you know, either an albino chimp or even better, an albino gorilla it would have been much more effective to just display that than than making all these, you know, crazy changes to a body. And they were talking about stretching and, you know, fingers and toes and all these things to make this bizarre thing. Um, I just thought it was an interesting point. I don't know how they do that. Yeah, I don't know. Well, they they said it would have been a real real artwork of taxidermy if, you know, if somebody had – possess the possess those skills and then it's just you know and tom brought up a good point we were discussing it you know you, you want to go with the path of least resistance if you're going to do something right so why would you go through all of that effort to create some fake that you wouldn't really benefit a whole bunch from well i think that's an awful lot of trouble and i don't think that you you're, you're dealing with uh, an individual uh i don't know that much about the the, the man that uh um encounter the ice man uh he's uh from um the air force he was a captain uh, in the I've air seen, force yeah 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 um i've seen the pictures that that uh, in your book that, that's not a chimpanzee uh that's not a gorilla uh that's not any monkey i've ever seen uh and it does bear a striking resemblance in the head to our neanderthal um you know uh, recreations you know you get a lot of these places that do the the wax recreations of uh for the museums and such and um and i'm telling you it does bear a striking resemblance but we have never ever found any remains of um, neanderthals in the um, well even in north america or south america but you know what there's not who's to say that they didn't come across that bearing straight along with uh, a lot of other things yeah, exactly. So. <clears throat> and I remember, uh, well, like, um, and I spaced off his name, the guy who wrote, uh, Danny Vendermini wrote, wrote the book, Them and Us, and he had an artist do uh, some work with Neanderthal skulls uh, to do a creation. And that's something people should note. When you see pictures out there, artwork of Neanderthals, those are artist interpretations. It doesn't mean it looked exactly like that at all. It could have been very different. So. Sure. What Vendermini had done, it was very different than what the conventional, you know, appearance of Neanderthal was. And that's what even Huvelman's, you know, he titled the book Neanderthal. And it could very well be, you know, this, what we call the type four creature, could very well be a Neanderthal, um, you know, relative or what have you, instead of what we think of as a Sasquatch. Exactly. And, and you see... Uh, you hear all of these observations by people saying that it looks so human in the face. And, and I don't care what you say about Neanderthals. People call them, you know, uh, think that they were knuckle-dragging, 
you know, cavemen, but, you know, I go back to what I've said before. You know what? They were here on this earth a lot longer than Homo sapiens sapien has been, and I don't think they ever left. And, God, I'm going to say something that somebody's probably not going to call in and and uh, um, <laughs> get me for, but has anybody ever really looked at a lot of Eastern Europeans and their facial features? Um I think they share a lot of facial features like Neanderthals. And and that's not being said to uh, as a, a slight or anything else to Europeans uh, in that case, because we, you know, they're finding out that all of us, with the exception of uh, people from Africa, um, and even some of them actually have had some encounter and inbreeding with uh, Neanderthals up in the northern regions. But most of your southern Africans don't have any type of Neanderthal in them. So it pretty much uh, shows you that Neanderthals exclusively, they were designed for cold weather. And so they weren't wandering around in the, the, uh, the warmer climates. And you... That, that that's not a uh, you know somebody's going to think that I'm trying to say that they're slow witted or something like that because that's not it at all. Those people were around for a long time and I don't think they ever left. My pers- that's my personal opinion. Right, and and there's a couple and there's a couple other points in there too. I mean, and you're right. I mean, they had first of all the the skull cavity was about 200 cc's larger, I believe, than humans. Larger, yes. <laughs> so they had larger brains than us, considerably larger. I, I think that's about would equate to about a third larger than ours. So exactly. they're not stupid um, or weren't stupid. And as far as the features go, you know, that would be, that would be based off from skull morphology and, and not opinion, right? Right, exactly. And, and I think, Tom and I, I'm going to interject something here. You know, people, you know, the, well, they hadn't ex- expanded their technology as far as points and such as that. But, you know, if you don't really need something... You're not going to develop, try to develop something better. Absolutely. And, uh, and Tom and I talked about this once upon a time. Tom, remember about the, the Mayans? Uh, he said, well, they didn't have yes. the concept of the wheel. And I said, oh, but they did. They had wheeled toys. The Mayans had wheeled toys. They knew what the concept of the wheel was, but they lived in the jungle. Of what use would a wheeled object or wagon be for them in the jungle? Right, that'd be for more open ground. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm curious. I, I do have a question, uh, just kind of a hypothetical one, on the Neanderthals. So they're they're a northern climate, cold climate, um, hominid. Would they, um, yeah, and if there's still some around today, you know, maybe, maybe they're the type fours. Um, going back... Uh, when they were more dominant on the earth, do we have any uh, anthropological evidence of what they, you know, how did they live? In other words, are there parallels between their living habits in the past and what they would need to do? You know, could we see anything like that today? In other words, uh, you know, the bedding, the, the food, you know, that sort of thing. Well, first off, the few fossil finds that we do have of uh, Neanderthals are usually grave sites. And um, 
you know, we, we realized that they did have a probably extensive culture of religion because there was one uh, grave site that they found that uh, they had actually placed uh, red ochre on the body, and um, then there was flowers on there. Well, that, that tells you right there that you're not dealing with a dumb, you know, um, just a dumb, stupid caveman. They, had, they have a culture. Um, now, sites in caves are going to be more readily available to be found and studied, and that's where they usually find all the, well, as far as I know, all the, the skeletal finds have been found within caves. Um, I to find something like that out on the open, uh, you know, prairie lands and savannas of their time would be uh, probably next to impossible. I mean, they have since discovered that when the glacial period uh, was with us in uh, how many thousands of years ago, that all of that land out off of Spain and France and even all the way to uh, Great Britain, all that was connected. And I'm sure that was, uh, you know, your mastodons uh, and your mammoths grazed, were grazing animals. They, they ate uh, grass, and so all of that was all savanna and grassland. So their mammoths being their primary source of food would have been out there. So it's, I would think that they would have probably established shelters and villages, whatever you, or groups. I don't know how we had no idea how large the groups were, but they would have been out there on those areas. Well, those have since flooded back, and there's no way in the world that we're going to be ever to, uh, uh, you know, find the sites out there now. But I mean, we know that they took care of their elderly. They have uh, a, a skeleton skeleton that and this is actually where some people got the uh, idea that all uh, neanderthals were hunchback was that they found a skeleton and the man was actually uh, uh, he had arthritis and he had arthritis so bad that he was uh, you know from partly from injuries because these guys suffered injuries like what you see on bull riders from these uh, uh, large uh, Pleistocene mammals that, that were taken down I mean, they were hardy, hardy people, (laughs) more so than anything we could ever, uh, you know, live through. But um, this man was just absolutely uh, riddled with arthritis, and uh, he was hunched, and and they took care of him. So you're talking about people that were were caring and, and, um, you know, they had the same human emotions as as we do. And... um, uh, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what else to say about that except that what you're going to do, and that that particular time you're, they're going to be looking at caves for their um, habitation area and not so much out in the open plains uh, either. So, you know, because of that, most of the finds are going to be in caves, and they have been, and I mean they're still excavating caves in France and uh, the coast of Spain. You know, I would think, too, that because of the cold, harsh environment that they thrived in, um, now, they might not necessarily have favored caves. That's just where the remains have been found. They may have been mm-hmm. out on the open savannas, but because of those harsh conditions, um, you know, scavenging would have been a, a much 
larger scale, let's say, than in, in more favorable climates for animals. And had they died out there without being buried, they would have simply been scavenged and scattered whatever remains was there, and there's no fossilization. Well, and even if you buried your dead out there, uh, so many of those areas were uh, we surmise, and it's just, you know, uh, it's all, we don't really know for sure, but we surmise that they did their hunting out there in those areas. It's all underwater now. Yeah, and, right. And, I mean, they obviously... They obviously buried their dead, um, but uh, you know, who's to say if if a uh, mammoth came down on top of a guy? Uh, I mean, they would have to literally butcher the thing to get to him, possibly. So, you know, somebody might have been left there. But you know, the act of fossilization—you've <laughs> got to have absolutely the perfect conditions. Ideal the reason conditions. We have yep. Uh, rarity of. Uh, uh, hominid, hominid, <laughs> I don't even know what they call them anymore. Hominids, right. hominids. They keep changing uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> they can't make up their mind. And I, I was, I was actually reading an article here that a friend of mine sent me that, you know, when I went to school, it was Australopithecus afriensis. Uh, it, that didn't even exist. It was gracile in the robustus form. Now they've done away with that, and it's afriensis. And now they come up with another one, saying that, oh no, there's a, there's a different. Another variety of uh, australopithecus. Oh, so Lord. you know what? No, nobody <laughs> knows. Nobody knows. I don't care how smart you are. They're, you know, you can study these things for for uh, eons of time, and nobody knows for sure how the uh, uh, exact uh, tree of evolution went. Well, um, and you know, John the, John made a good point when he, we brought that up one time. He said it's not so much a tree; it's more bushes. Yes, exactly. So you have you have things developing at the same time, but in different areas, not necessarily connected to one another. Exactly, and and there's so many gaps in that um, tree trunk and the bushes and everything else because and nobody knows. Huge gaps. And there's only like I think there's probably twenty five twenty five twenty six individuals that we have that we can even call uh, our ancestors and we really don't even know if they really were our ancestors but they do exhibit uh, features that uh, we have acquired and um, so who's to say you know we <laughs> even our forefather was we even <laughs> kind of threw around John and I threw around the idea of you know in that record because they want to say well all of these things are you know pre-human ancestors well what if they aren't what if the ancestor to the Sasquatch is actually represented in there? And one good candidate was the Australopithecus robustus. And uh, exactly. and, I, and I thought that looking at the at the fossil photographs, and, and John says that was his idea too. So, you know, we don't know. Well, now there, uh, like I said, I try to keep up with this stuff. There's been so many things that have just been discovered since I went to school and makes me feel really stupid. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, I was reading um, an article on one that they had found in Tanzania and um, they're now thinking that maybe the acquisition of walking bipedally didn't occur because you know always the theory was that when the savannas started developing and then the trees started becoming more sparse and sparse and farther apart that that was what uh, prompted uh you know, man's ancestors to climb down from the trees, walk bipedally, because, you know, let's face it, 
on the savannas, that is an advantage because that way you can see above the grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was the uh, thing that prompted man to do that. Well, now they're saying that maybe it was more like what the orangutans do. I don't know if you've ever watched, I mean, orangutans can brachiate beautifully, but they also, they will grab a branch and they will walk across tree limbs. Oh, sure. And so now they're thinking that maybe that was what, uh, what was how bipedal walking developed, that they uh, learned to walk across uh, bipedally on limbs. And then uh, as their arms got shorter and shorter, then they... uh, were able to get down and actually walk on the land, you know. Lots of ideas. It's going to be a long time before anybody's going to know the truth. (laughs) Oh, yeah, if ever, really. Yeah. Yeah, I do want to comment, though. Uh, Interesting, the the fact that the Neanderthals buried their dead, it's like they, and they did rituals, you know, with flowers and the red orca. Yeah. I mean that that indicates to 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 me that they had some concept of either an afterlife or that's a loving gesture to the deceased. And I mean these are these are not cold-hearted, non-feeling beasts. And a long time they've gotten a bad rap for being that way. Yeah, it shows, like I say, it shows thinking many, and caring. Yeah, you you get this idea that they they grab their women by the hair and they drag them around and and I don't think it was anything like that at all, uh, n- not at all. You know, it's interesting too with the Sasquatch. There are a couple of stories out there, and I think they were native stories where uh, supposedly creatures were seen with a dead individual and buried it. Um, not a lot of ceremony or anything, but. <laughs> The fact that there were four or five, you know, living ones with a dead one, and then they proceeded to bury the individual. I, I think that is a possibility. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Y'all know I raise uh, horses. What we do when we have a mare that loses a baby, and I had my vet, who's just about, well, I consider but one of the smartest men on the face of this earth, um, Dan told me to leave the baby in the stall with the mayor and he said and watch what happens and you know what they do they take the sawdust in the stall and they cover that baby oh wow that's interesting yes i've heard and that what, they grieve yes uh, they do they'll, they'll and, and gather around in a group and yes they do yeah uh, elephants do the when, same thing mm-hmm yeah, and, and elephants always want to go up and touch the body, and they'll they'll uh, move their trunks all over the body. Well, horses, uh, I've seen them do the same thing on a uh, when I've had one of my old mares just lay down and die, and uh, uh, you'll have all the others coming around and 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 sniffing all over, and and they'll just stand, and a lot of times they'll stand there with her. Yeah, I had I had an old mare that actually died in the the field here uh, a couple of years ago and uh, I, that's how I knew she had passed I mean we were feeding and the horses wouldn't come in they were all there with her I, I think I think in a lot of ways we tend to underestimate the intelligence and the you know like you said the feelings of animals because they don't speak our language 
and so we can't get that sense of intelligence. But I think if you look at other clues, uh, even you know, cats and dogs are just very, very intelligent. Well, I think I've told you, Tom, that about cats. <clears throat> A little-known fact about cats is that you know that the cat's brain is formatted exactly identical to how our brain is formatted. <laughs> I, I, yeah. No, I did not know that, but that explains things. <laughs> that explains a lot of things, doesn't it, Tom? You and I both being cat lovers. I, I sent Tom a right? lot of cat jokes, so. <laughs> right? Yeah, they're, they're good at manipulating people, too. <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's an old adage. Cats rule and dogs drool. <laughs> Cats have slaves and dogs have masters. <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> well, I like them both. <laughs> well, I do too. <laughs> well, Tom, you got—I know you got some questions from listeners, so uh, you want to yeah. go ahead and bring one of those up? We got a bunch of them, and and then um, Forrest, you and I talked about a situation that I think we're going to discuss too if we get time. But this okay. uh, this one is from Moran in um, Canada, and this is specifically uh, for Forrest. He says, "I was wondering if you could explain to me um, in regards to Sasquatch how they may have gotten so widespread and what they could be." So a couple of questions in there. He says, I've been putting a lot of thought into this. And, um, you know, how, how is it that they, you know, they got so spread, widespread across the world? Because they're, I mean, they're down in Australia, for crying out loud. I mean, that's, you know, that's its own little world. So uh, can you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, heavens. Um, well, they're kind of like, most primates, um, they got the wanderlust, I guess. Um, look at humans. <laughs> Who would have thought that we would spread all over the world like we did? And uh, we did. And, you know, whether we want to admit it, uh, you know, our racial types are actually based on um, adaptations that we have developed in those regions that we remained in or maybe originated in and then spread from. So the same thing is with uh, um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yowie, Yeti, <laughs> whatever you want to call him, Yowin. Uh, they have slowly spread across the world. I mean, they took opportunities just the same as any other uh, type of mammal did and moved into other areas, whether it be pressure from other groups or predators or what it causes that causes animals to move, and um, they took, you know, advantage of those areas, and that's why I think you have the slight variations in them when people uh, describe them. I mean, your Yowie, it sounds like a Bigfoot, but there are some different uh, uh, differences in uh, Yowies and and our Bigfoots, and um, then uh, there's difference in the uh, the Yeti, and there's difference in the the uh, urine and what is it Alma? What they call them in Russia? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all slight very. They're all basically the same animal, but there's slight variations. Yeah, I was. And 
I think that represents adaptations to the area that they they have acquired through those thousands of years. And it doesn't take that long. All it takes is one mutation and and for that mutation to be a dominance and the the gene pool, and, and there you go. It's just like blue eyes. They have traced blue eyes. Blue eyes in the world came from one individual. You know, it's interesting. I get asked that question periodically about the, the variations. And I was told through my source there are 22 variations here in North America alone. And and it makes sense because you get varying witness descriptions from location to location. And, and a good one that I like to use is when we look at the Patterson film, that creature is very, very muscular. It's built for mountainous terrain. You go mm-hmm. east of the mountains here on the West Coast, and it's pretty flat and open. The ones that are seen there are mostly... Um, they appear the same, except they're more slender. They're more designed for open ground running instead of the bulky muscles for mountainous terrain. Longer and leaner. Yeah, same creature, two different variations. Right. And then you get your swamp ape down in, uh, uh, or skunk ape, uh, whatever you want to call it, down in Florida, and uh, you've got uh, the descriptions that you get from uh, that area are uh, are not anything like what you see in the Patterson film. Right, exactly. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, we adapt to where we're, we're living in, you know, the, the area that we're living in and the conditions that were, uh, are forced upon us. Next question, Tom. Okay, so I want to jump into the question for us. This is the one that you and I talked about. Will, you're familiar with it. And there was a person that was, I think it was in 2019, had, uh, they they died here in in Southern Oregon, but it was kind of gruesome. They were found at the bottom of a ravine. Um, Actually, their pants and I believe shoes had been taken off and uh, something had gnawed on their intestines and also... Uh, you know, their reproductive organs. And this is something, Forrest, I asked you about because chimps have behavior like that. Isn't that right? Yes, that is correct. And um, you'll see that um, there's not a whole lot of uh, film footage out there of um, chimpanzees fighting, but if you ever get the opportunity to look at it the first place they go is um, for the facial area the groin area and the stomach the stomach being the fact that they can rip those intestines out your opponent is um, completely um, at your mercy Um, the groin area they do that the males do that when they're fighting because if you can uh, destroy the reproductive region of that male, well, he's done for. <laughs> he's no longer competitive with you. Um, he's going to go away. If he recovers, he's not going to be coming back to be breeding the females. And um, more than likely, he's probably going to go go somewhere and die. Um, they do that when they attack humans. They go for the facial reg- regions. And they will rip a person's face to shreds. And then they will, if it is a male that they're going after, I've not ever heard of them doing this with a female, uh, but it would not be uncommon to have heard that they went for the the stomach region of a female. But uh, I know that female that Oliver attacked, she 
her face is unrecognizable to this day. I mean, it was, uh, and she's had numerous, numerous reconstruction uh, surgeries done on the face. But um, they go for the groin area, and they can certainly do some damage because you've seen those canines on them. I have not ever seen a gorilla do this. Most of their, you know, you know, I told you that gorillas avoid, uh, you know, bloodshed at all costs. They, they really, they are really the gentle giants of the forest. And with them, I mean, they have got, a, I mean, they have got some sets of canines on them, but uh, most of the time you will see them just, it's an open mouth yawn type and uh, they will use the, those for display of aggression. And it's usually whoever's got the bigger set is going to win the, I mean, they will come in to t- have tussles and every once in a while there might be a little bloodshed, but it's not going to be uh, a battle to the death. Now with chimpanzees, that's an entirely different situation. They are, um, you know, people say, how can they be that way? And you know, I've said over and over and over, we'll look at humanity chimpanzees share nearly 98% of their DNA with us. And it's only that slight 2%, uh, I think it's 2.7% that uh, they have that we don't have that makes the us the naked ape and them the hairy one. So, uh, you know, <laughs> trust me, uh, I think culture has made man evolve into a, a slightly nicer version. But uh, sometimes we know that doesn't always work out so well either in our society. So I think we're seeing a lot of that right now in the news. But uh, um, you know, it come to they, mind was Carol talking about her. The lady who talked to her had her uh, was knocked out and her intestines being eaten by the Sasquatch. Uh, kind of goes right to exactly what the point is. Mm-hmm. And you see that in a lot of the, uh, a lot of these deer kills. Now, I've never personally seen one, but I've heard y'all talk about it, and I've heard it talked about on a lot of other uh, uh, shows where they take and kill the deer and then rip out their intestines, and each, um, you know, they're they're going for those uh, uh, organs that are rich in vitamins and all that, you know, like hearts and livers, and, and that's what they want, and not necessarily the, the meat itself. You know, it's interesting about the vitamins. Uh, I'd mentioned going with a witness up here in Northern California a few years ago to a location where he'd had some sightings a few years previous, and he didn't think the creatures were still there, but I found fresh markings within within hours of them being made, uh, about four feet of finger drag marks in some clay. And mm-hmm. uh, I talked to John, our forensic anthropologist, and he says, oh, yeah, that... Uh, a lot of animals will eat clay for the mineral content. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do. And um, buffaloes, uh, deer, elk in the wild. I mean, uh, I used to have, when we would drive up and down the Alcan, um, I would have, well, if we stopped to get gas or something like it was nothing to have a moose come up or even... Uh, elk come up on the road uh, into these gas stations and they would lick the dust off of the car and I thought that I even asked one of the guys around there I said well, that's kind of peculiar why would they be looking <laughs> and, he, and he said uh, that that particular area along the Alcan 
uh, they have a uh, what they call a mineral lick. And he said, oh, yeah, they go up in there and they eat the clay off the, the cliffs. And, uh, and he said, and you driving up and down that road, they have salted the road. So they're getting the salt off of the, out of the dust and uh, such off of your truck. And I went, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and you know, there's caves in Africa that uh, elephants will make long treks to. Because they have salt mines down inside these caves, and they will go in there, and they will, I mean, it's not like the salt is just there. It's, they have to, they actually eat the clay and such that has the salt in it. That's interesting. I actually found one other spot like that, you know, doing my field work. Uh, we were we were up pretty high up on an, ele- an elevation, and it was here in Northern California. Um, we stopped, and, and I was out looking at this area and we found this spot uh not far from the road where not not a well-used road not many people up there but it clearly looked like if you were to take your hand with your thumb up and wipe away the surface of of the dirt and it revealed clay underneath maybe you know a quarter inch or less it was very light surface but the clay and then there were clear finger marks that were dragged a few inches in that clay so it's what made me when i saw the one here um just a few years ago i mean these you know the finger the finger markings were about oh inch to an inch and a half wide and they were clearly four of them drug four feet in this clay about an inch deep i still kind of kick myself for not taking plaster and casting that because it was so interesting but i've actually seen this a couple times now so they've been needed to go gotten some fingerprints and such. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, too. The first time we found footprints when I was 14, what led us to that was finding animal intestines lying between the rails on, on a railroad line. And there was no sign of the dead animal, and we found Bigfoot tracks very close to where this was. Hmm. Strange. Yeah, it was very, I, I can, very odd. I can't find... Uh, if animal intestines just does not hold any appeal to me, but that's not to say. <laughs> well, you know, when you're a kid, you, you see this stuff. I grew up on a farm, you know, so I was used to that kind of stuff. But I thought, at the time, I thought, well, how in the world did this get here? <laughs> you know, because there was no footprints anywhere. But when we searched well, the area just above the tracks, yeah. there was there was a uh, a raised area, kind of a like they'd built the tracks through a hill, and. Um, and right on top of that, it was it was if and you could see where, where something huge had set down in the snow and there was a fist print and there were footprints all over the place. And it was almost as if it reached out and had dropped some of the intestines onto the tracks. Oh. Sure, you know, here's a question, up. Will. I never thought of this until just now, but did you ever find what the intestines were from? In other words, no. did you find carcasses? No, no sign of an animal at all. I assumed they sat there and ate whatever it was. But I just don't know. Now, my friend John, a few years, well, it was more than a few years later, we were in high school then. Uh, we, we used to have a trail between our house and went through the woods. And that's how we would get back and forth most of the time to see each other. And the last time that he went and used that trail, uh, he took my dog with him for company. And uh, he found a deer that was killed up just inside the trail area. And the neck had been twisted, broken, and and it was open in its midsection. And it spooked him so bad he hurried up and, and went home. And, and my dog, he said my dog acted really funny around it, too. 
Hmm. I want to ask Tom a question here just a second. It just suddenly occurred to me. Tom, when we were talking about the other individual, and you know who I'm referring to that with the groin and the, the, the stomach uh, um, ripped open, uh, was was his face intact? Do you know? His, uh, his eyeballs had been removed or eaten. That's that, but that's all I know. I don't know. I don't have any more information than that. Um, did, but did they did. Upper clothing on. Don't know. That I don't know. Uh, they didn't mention uh, one way or the another. Uh, several months later, uh, because it was a mystery what had happened to this person. Um, exactly. It it came out in the news that they they had solved the mystery. Uh, it was a bear that had uh, done all this. Always a bear. So, well, <laughs> it's the bears. I'm telling you, uh, <laughs> they're they're a, they're far more capable than we can possibly imagine. And, but it always went in the other direction. So anyway, <laughs> right, right, and you know they're victims too. So I don't know what the deal is with that. But <laughs> um, and then the, I guess they had assumed that maybe birds said, uh, you know peck the eyeballs out which you know it's a possibility, well, a possibility. Yeah. Uh-huh. and you know in the news they don't give all the details usually so it could have been a very different scene than what they were portraying I know and only people like you and I and, and Tom have a morbid interest in what, what did he actually look like <laughs> well we we had a the way we found out about it was there's a there's a few uh, telltale profile points in the, in the whole situation and Lee who we know well um, called up and kind of alerted us to this and in his typical very cordial uh, <laughs> demeanor <laughs> facetiously said right right well we won't even go into that but, but it was he brought up some really good points well, it makes you just want to run right out there in that area and go hunting, huh, by yourself. <laughs> well, if you want to be a cyclone, yeah. maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a it's an area of high activity. Um, and I was just re- listening to well, we we she's actually read some of your books, uh, Lynn Smith. Oh yeah, was yeah. reading she was reading the story from that exact region. Uh, some kind of spooky stuff going on, so she put that out today. So that's we always we like Lynn, so we like to uh, pr- cross promote. And, and what she's been reading are from my my two Witness of the Unknown books, and what those books are primarily are people will send me because uh, a lot of times we get people who, who want to relate their story, but they won't they won't either record or you know they're just not interested in, in talking about it, but they'll write it out. And and I'm working on the third volume now. I have about. I'd still like to have about 25 more accounts because they're usually not very long. But uh, it's very interesting where somebody will have an experience and they'll relate it in their own words that way. But that's where that comes from, what she's reading. Well, you know, some of these accounts, just like me telling you about the incident in the cabin, I mean, I didn't, I had talked to Chuck before I I wanted to tell y'all. I said, because I kept thinking, Chuck, are they going to think I'm a complete nutcase? And he's like, no. No, go ahead, tell them, because that's something that you need to tell them. And because that is something that happens quite readily and far too often. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, I think a lot of people think too. Get my courage up to tell Tom. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. It's it's really difficult for them to discuss what they've experienced because of that reason. It's like, well, they're going to think I'm crazy. No, we don't think you're crazy. We've we hear the same elements time and time again. Right. And and that's yeah, that's a key point. Is you know these repeating patterns, and the stuff that happens is so outside of the you know, as Will said, outside of our frame of reference, it's way outside the ordinary. That How do you explain this? I mean, how do you explain that you woke up, you had a can of pork and beans, you know, bump your hip, and you've got this, you know, massive injury on your head. The door's open, the ha- and the house reeks of musk. Well, you know, you, 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 you take all that information in its totality, and what does it point to? Well, it really only yeah. points to well, one thing. And we have a couple of examples that are similar. We have the story that T.W. told about his friend John and Carol's incidents. And Brenda. And Brenda. Oh, Brenda's oh. got some good ones. Yeah. yeah. So they're repeating behaviors. Okay, we got a question for from Tony in Australia. And um, by the way, I want to say real quick, I just want to do a, a kind of a promote this book we have a couple in australia will that we had on the show uh, a while back and they sent you and i a copy of the yowie in search of australia's bigfoot it's a great book oh it's 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 amazing so again thank you very much to that couple i mean that is just a fantastic it's a it's a good resource um so we have tony from australia and incidentally, the author of this book is Tony. I wonder if it's the same person. Anyway, Tony wants to know, he says, my question is, has Will managed to stay committed to the Bigfoot subject over the past 49 years? And what drives you to continue the search for answers? <laughs> you know, it's funny. When you when you look for answers, I've heard other people say this too when they've done something a long time. The more answers you get, the more questions it brings up. And, and those questions sometimes drive me crazy, and I have to answer them. So I, I keep delving deeper and deeper into this. It's a puzzle. It is. And and you're trying to assemble. It, it's like, okay, you know, years, many years ago, people today, don't, I'm sure don't do it a whole lot, but people used to build puzzles many years ago. And it's like, you know, you've got a thousand pieces. Uh, so you're trying to assemble this thing, and, and usually you've got a picture to go by. This subject is you're trying to assemble the picture with no picture to go by, with just these small pieces. And and a witness account is a microcosm into these creatures' daily routines. So it's very difficult putting this together, but as you assemble more and more pieces, you get a clearer picture. You know, and Will, I go back to this time and time again. You know, you saw the, uh, the bloody entrails and your friend's dad... Uh, was it John's dad it was John, who came out it with was the John's pistol? Dad, yeah. Okay, and so he's telling you guys about this thing called a Bigfoot, and I know your response because I'm a guy too. It's like <laughs> monst- monsters. Well, you know, we were in my backyard when we were, you know, that age. You know, we were fourteen. <laughs> yeah, we were fourteen, and and you know, you like in those days we liked the old Frankenstein and Dracula movies and all that stuff, right? So that was cool. So when somebody's telling you there are real monsters out in your woods. It's like, wow, you know, I get to go look for real monsters, you know, not thinking of the consequences, but, you know, <laughs> and we didn't see I got to tell you, and that's, 
that's with me today. That's the intrigue of this whole subject is, wow. You know, it's, it's and somebody once said to those who seek uh, adventure and knowledge, uh, who was that? Can't anyway? imagine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, I'll tell you, though, uh, I've gotten to the point with knowledgeness that I, I don't, I, sometimes I have that same feeling, but it's equally uh, balanced by kind of a feeling of dread because I know what these things do and why yeah. they do these things. And it kind of creeps me out a little bit sometimes when we're in the field because, you know, you're always looking over <laughs> your shoulder wondering, do you got one of these nasty ones or a group of nasty ones and what are they going to do? Or, you know, that's why when we went in September, you know, I'm looking at all the small signs, oh, yeah. you know, our, mm -hmm. our, our friend who was with us, uh, we won't mention his name, but uh, he was sort of poo-pooing that. And, and I told you, I said, we ha you have to understand the small signs so you know what they're going to do. Well, and he does know, uh, he's had, he's experienced with uh, the creatures, you know, with uh, their dark side. And it always cracks me up, you know, there's... You know they're called Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and he's actually got, got some other vernacular. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that we can't mention on the air. Right, rhymes with truckers. <laughs> yeah. Vernaculars <laughs> um, might actually fit him better. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Right, but um, you know he and all of us, I think immediately realized that we were being drawn into an ambush situation you, you know it's and funny in that term, we huh? left the way we came oh, yeah usually it's funny that oh, i was going to oh, mention the one, was that the one tom where y'all y'all started very quietly backing out of there we got out of there quickly yeah, yeah very well, quickly okay <laughs> we, we jumped we, in the we trucks did, and we left. had yeah just before that we held a um kind of a democratic uh, meeting which it was unanimous it lasted oh, about 10, 10 seconds, seconds. <laughs> yeah <laughs> if that you, you know it's funny tom you know he calls he calls them that my my terminology i, I usually don't refer at least in, in private I'll, I'll say hairy bastards i don't use the bigfoot or sasquatch these <laughs> hairy bastards right <laughs> <laughs> well mine's just we just called the it's the hairy man around here and i mean that's i mean jessica uses that term sherry everybody it's hairy man the hairy man here have you seen hairy man that's what alaska <laughs> natives refer to him as the hairy man yes i know uh-huh i had a i had a native friend up in alaska and uh, she actually um told me some you know she says they're real they're real you know the natives have known about them for oh, centuries they have some very I guess bad they, yeah, yeah they as some... an anthropologist, that's what frustrates me. Is because do you think all these natives throughout all these hundreds of years have just been making all this up? And I, I get so tired of, you know, these um, white and I and I use that loosely, mm -hmm. uh, anthropologists and archaeologists saying, oh, it's just it's mythology, it's mythology. Well, you know what? Usually, most mythology is based on, uh, you know, facts somewhere. Right. I, I had to laugh. I, I think back to when I first started college after the military. You know, I'd been a sergeant, and, uh, you know, sergeants in the Army are, are generally, you don't really care about what somebody else thinks a whole bunch. <laughs> so I <laughs> I walked in the first day, and, and my anthropology professor was also the head of the department. And I walked into his office, asked if I could talk to him. So I sat down in front of him, and I kind of did a did a Renee to him, and I sort of pounded on the desk, and I said, what do you know, what do you think about Bigfoot? <laughs> Just right out in his face, he, and he looked like somebody kind of smacked him, you know. <laughs> And he says, well, but he was very open-minded. He was a great guy. 
and and we chatted about it and quite a bit and you know he didn't have much to offer but i said you know i i'm here i'm here to learn about anthropology because of this and and that's the reason i went in that direction academically and it has helped quite a bit well yeah and um i was lucky because at the um uh, uh, my first anthropology professor was he was actually Indian, and I'm talking about East Indian. Oh, wow! And yes, and he he told us stories about Yetis. And, oh, they've got extensive uh, he, stuff. He had, yes, he actually had seen one as a child, and he thoroughly believed in it. And and Bigfoot, and you know, and he was he was my inspiration because I thought, well, this is a, a man that's got a doctorate and he, he's smart, you know, and he believes in this stuff. It's not something that's made up. You know, there's, you know, he's seen it, there's a really interesting book and it was written in 1955. I think it wasn't published till a couple of years later, but written by a man named John Keel and about his adventures <clears> in <throat> that region, North, North India and, and Nepal. And there's two solid chapters in there where he actually pursued a Yeti until he saw two of them. And it's really, mm-hmm. really interesting, and, and locals all, you know, when, when, and I can't remember the word I used, their their name for it, but when it came up, you know, they were all terrified. And I actually got that from a friend who works in New Delhi. He's from uh, Liverpool, but he works there, and he knows, of course, a lot of the folks down there, especially uh, some people from the Indian military, and they're all very matter-of-fact about it, and locals are terrified of the Yeti today. Yeah, they say the military don't, don't, even want to go into the areas if they know that they're they don't and it's interesting you know my friend he said uh he said the 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 tiger population is making a huge comeback and it's primarily due to the indian special forces because they're the ones that sort of handle the poaching situation there and he said their Mm -hmm. method of handling poachers is that if they think somebody's a poacher they just kill them on the spot (laughs) (laughs) but 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 if they get word that a yeti's in the area they won't they will not go there uh-huh. And the Eddie come in and take however many people they want to, and then they leave. Huh. Just sort of matter of fact. You know, you think about it, it's in a sense, it's almost like an undeclared battle or war situation with between humans and the Yeti or Bigfoot or what have you. It's probably always been that way. You know, I've talked to, yeah. talked to Indian friends here who have told me, oh, yeah. And in fact, the one friend I had from Klamath Falls, he said, uh, yeah, the cre- these things were here before our people came to this region, and we drove them out of the hunting areas. He said that's why they live up in the high mountainous areas because we drove them out. You know, indicating and they'll probably be here after we leave. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting some of the things, and I, I mentioned mentioned to Tom we were we were discussing yesterday um, about some of the the different Indian beliefs, and. I was contacted when I first wrote notes from the field back in 2003. Uh, I was interested in using some photographs of Native American artwork, and it was typically the, or specifically the masks, ceremonial masks, that represent the Sasquatch. And so I contacted some of the galleries in Canada that displayed these for sale, and, and I asked if I could get written permission from the artisans to use that in, in exchange for, you know, getting them some exposure and hopefully some sales. And they all responded very positive. They were all very nice people. And uh, one of them wrote back, and he was identified himself as a chief and an elder of the Hyata tribe. And he says, 
very specifically says be careful what you hear from different native sources because it will depend on their experience with the creatures both both current and historically he says usually um you know we we have friends from uh, the flathead tribe and, and you know fred in alaska and the ones who have the real direct contact with them will tell you they're man eaters don't and you know don't mess with them uh, the ones who have the more flowery descriptions don't have a lot of experience it's more their ideas about the creatures he says so you have to kind of learn how to distinguish the difference well that would make sense though it does yeah well the thing too uh, uh, when you were talking about the mask and such um, you know people are always saying that they're in a um, and I've seen the totems um, uh, actually where they have them on the totems and uh, you see them with the first lips and uh, the whistling yeah that's how, that's how you identify which one is the wild man did we did we lose Forrest? Sounds like it. Oh, all right. Let me call her back. Sometimes things calls get dropped, folks. Let's see. But yeah, that's that was the uh, that was how you identify them. And it's not just the purse lips. I mean, you know, we have a good friend who made a a mask carving for me, and and it's uh, there. She is. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> we lost you, but yeah, the purse—the purse—the purse lips were are whistling, and that's how you identify the Sasquatch and native carvings. Well, that's that's what they. That I was told that they were whistling, but I, 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 I might beg to differ there, um, because have you ever seen a primate when they hoot? How they do oh, their mouth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the same posture. The exact same posture but we do know the creatures whistle we well oh no i'm, I'm not denying mm. that no but yeah that's a good point i never really thought about that yeah and i've heard them make the hooting noises it sounds like chimps we had uh yeah. we were outside of mount rainier a bunch of my old friends from high school camping up there just outside the, the park boundary and um one of the guys says hey do you hear that so we stepped away from the fire and above us, about a hundred feet on this on a steep slope, you could hear two. One was making kind of a funny chattering noise, and it was moving back and forth. You could tell, and, and it sounded really agitated. The other was hooting, exactly like a chimp. Mm-hmm. It was the weirdest set of noises I've ever heard. I think in the wild, and coincidentally, it was an area of a lot of activity with these creatures. Yeah, that'd be rather disconcerting to wake up and <laughs> listen to that. Yeah, we just kind of sit there and all listening to this, and we're like, wow, you know. And then after, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes of it, it went silent. Uh, but apparently they were up there not happy with our presence, but they decided to leave. Huh. And it could be because there were, I don't know, five or six of us there. So, um, you know, we were kind of outnumbering them. Yeah. I don't think they like to deal with, people when they're in, in groups but they don't know uh, uh, you know one or two that's a different story i wonder how that corresponds to let's say chimp or gorilla populations you know is, is it a numbers game do you think with them too i think so and and um um a slight uh, I, i'm gonna go off track there just uh, a bit but uh you know with all the uh gorilla activity and uh the Congo region and um, 
those areas in there that you know you've heard all the, the tribal uh, conflicts that they've been having that they actually were hunting chimpanzees for a long time uh, for bushmeat. I mean, it, it baffles my mind that you could eat a primate that's really so closely. It's like eating your cousin. But uh, you know, I digress. Uh, so chimpanzees have basically changed their behavior in those areas to instead of feeding during the day, they hide during the day and they feed at night. Now, does that find, does that uh, 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 <laughs> sound familiar to you in any way with uh, uh, Bigfoot? Um, and you know, and pressure from uh, populations have caused chimpanzees and uh, gorillas both to move into uh, less populated areas, and which. It's kind of bad because it's limiting their territory, and now they're having problems with the chimpanzees warring upon the gorillas, and um, you know, it, it's all pressure from humans, you know, taking over their territories, which is it's a sad situation. It is, and I think what's happening with the Sasquatch here is, is in reverse because our behaviors changed dramatically over the past forty some years, fifty years. And now they're, oh, yeah. and now it's reversed. They're coming into close proximity with humans, and doing things they Same didn't before. Yeah, because yeah, they they're finding out that we're we're a source, we're a food source to Absolutely. them. And I'm not talking about you know coming in and, and killing humans, right. but you know we've got uh, livestock, we've got pets, we've got garbage, yep. and uh, you know dumpsters, and look at all the that food available. Oh yeah, we're them. easy. You know why do you have to run down a deer when you can go over here to the local dumpster area? Exactly, and we're not shooting at things like we used to, so we kind of let it happen. We're we're allowing this to occur inadvertently. Yep. Yes, exactly. And, and I would expect to see hey. quite a bit more of that in the future. Boris, I want to jump in real quick um, while we still got time. There's two interesting things. You got some updates, and we just sort of uh, totally forgot about those. But talking about you know the, the 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 creatures having an interest in our garbage and all that kind of stuff. So you had somebody come on your property a couple of weeks ago. They saw something, and then recently, you know what I'm talking about with the uh, Recycled bags. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us about okay. that. Well, okay. Well, two weeks ago, uh, Sherry actually texted me and she said that, uh, well, I say texted me. I honestly don't remember now whether she texted me or uh, we actually talked about it. Well, I think we have talked about it, but I can't initially remember how the conversation went. But anyway, um, her husband had brought her daughter out here to uh, take care of the horses and feed. They take one day on the weekend and then they take uh, two days during the week. And, um, uh, um, and then the, in the other, those other days, Jessica's here. Well, uh, Tra Travis was just standing out in the back, the way I understood it. And uh, he, what att attracted his attention was the fact that it was moving back and forth. And it was standing on the opposite side of the fence. Uh, on the other side of the fence, my neighbor has let it grow up really, really bad. And uh, in fact, uh, some of his trees during that really hard freeze that we had had actually died and fallen over on my fence and we've been trying to get that cleared out so that we could get the fencing back up um and this thing was standing in the corner and that's what attracted travis uh, travis's attention to it was the fact that it was swaying back and forth 
And when he, after he looked at it for uh, a couple of minutes, it actually just turned and then went off into the brush. And um, that was basically the end of it because uh, he just said it went off to the uh, the west there, off into the, the cedars. And you know exactly where I'm talking about, Tom, because you've seen the, the aerial photo, footage of the property yeah. here. Yeah, I have. And I want to ask you, uh, well, just your professional opinion. What does the swaying back and forth mean with primates? Well, swaying back and forth is not necessarily a good thing. Not a good thing. Um, <laughs> no. Isn't that agitation <laughs> it, it, and aggression? They're, they're agitated, and they're they, a lot of times they will do it trying to build up their, uh, uh, I don't want to say courage, but maybe uh, their agitation to a point that they, they think that they ought to do something about it. Now, another primate would see that. Uh, yeah, dumb people. Another primate would see that and go, oh, I'm getting out of here. So, because this guy's getting, uh, you know, mad. It's part of that um, ramping up behavior. Yeah, it's ramping up a, a bad behavior. And yet humans look at it and go, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Well, that's about the time you need to really turn and just walk away. I've interviewed a number and, of people over the years that have seen that. And, and they smartly left the situation. Yes. I mean, you know, you don't really want to stand there and you definitely don't want to stare them uh, in the eyes because then, you know, you really got a problem most generally. So, uh, but uh, this creature just, he went on his, uh, on his own way. And I, I'm, I'm glad because I didn't need something happening back there. Uh, but uh, do you want to hear about the story? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I definitely do. And real quick, before we do that, the swaying back and forth, and Will, you said you've heard that. Uh, did you also have a family member who saw one and my it sister. terrified? Yeah, my sister. But it wasn't yes. swaying back and forth. It was actually kind of jumping up and down. But it was like an agitated behavior. Chimps will do that. Oh, interesting, yeah. yeah. Well, she was driving... She was driving... Uh, home one night in, in the area we grew up in, and, or through that area, and um, not ever, in those days there wasn't hardly anybody out there, no real buildings or homes or anything, and she came to this four-way intersection that we knew, and there used to be a little store there uh, at around 2 a.m., and there was the only street light there in the whole area, and right as she was, this creature was under the street light and on the side of the road, and as the car came within five feet of it, it was it was doing this jumping up and down behavior scared the hell out of her. She wouldn't tell me for years about this. Did it have its mouth open or closed? She didn't say. Now, see if macaques oftentimes when they get into uh, an aggressive, uh, agitated state, they will you know do these little mock charges and they will uh, roll their uh, lips back and show their teeth, and they've got some substantial canines as well. Right. And then they'll do this little hopping you know, uh, motion forward, you know, and towards the, 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 per, uh, the, the person, the ape that they're, uh, 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 you know, just, you know, up, upset with. And then most generally the others will tuck tail and turn. Sometimes they, they will actually have an interaction and it, it can be a bloody interaction with macaques. They, they, they will rip each other apart. And do some substantial injuries to each other. Uh, but I'll, I'll um, have to ask her. They do that. They do that little kind of bouncing motion, and they'll go forward with it and uh, bouncing on their their front legs. Mm -hmm. I'll have to ask her because <clears throat> I never thought that, I, and I'm not sure how much she saw it because 
when when we first found footprints back in 1972, <clears throat> she kind of raked me and my my friend Mark over the coals. You know, and so did the rest of the family, but she was kind of the the main cheerleader of that one. And and in here, oh, it must have been that must have been around, around 1981. So uh, she had her own close encounter, and it wasn't until. Geez, probably another 10, 15 years later before she worked up the nerve to tell me. I, I think she was afraid I was going to kind of reverse roles, and I didn't, I, you know, because I, I know what I experienced in the same area. And for anybody else that's had the experience, I have a lot of sympathy, you know, for what they go through. Oh, yeah. <coughs> okay, so what about, let's talk about the recycle bags. Give us, what, what's the scoop of that? Okay, well, I I told Tom about this, and I I kind of have to laugh because it was it was it was comical in one sense, and then it wasn't in another. I um, I'm a recycle nut. I recycle everything, and uh, well, not everything, everything that's recyclable anyway. Um, and I had been um, I bag up my plastic and I put them in big black plastic bags, you know, as I fill them up, and then. And then we take them into Austin because Austin now is the only place that we can get uh, uh, them to take plastics. And um, so I had been kind of stockpiling it. And Sherry and I had gone into town. We delivered, got some hay and came back and kind of parked out there. And I was looking and I said, you know, I really need to get this um, uh, recycling taken into Austin. It's just really kind of got piled up. And I've got quite a few bags out there now full bags of plastic piled up. Well, the next morning I came out about seven thirty to let my kitties out of their um uh outdoor cat house. And I walked out the back door and I looked out there and there was like three or four of these big black bags they were thrown into the backyard. Well now I've had a gentleman here that was putting up my uh, a six foot fence around my yard. Well, we won't discuss <laughs> what has happened to him because nobody seems to know what has happened to him. He got it three-fourths of the way done, and the rest of it's not completed. So, you know, anything can just walk into my yard, including the horses now. Um, and I thought, well, that would be something kind of strange that the horses would do. I didn't know, know why they would be picking up uh, my, you know, black bags and throwing them around the yard. So. I go on around the corner, go let my cats out, come back, and that's what I noticed on the ground. And I always keep one bag on the end. That is, every night I'll go out there and I'll take my plastic bottles, whether it be uh, I have a Keurig, so I use distilled water. So I've always got, you know, the big one-gallon plastic uh, jugs to put in there. And so I, I always keep it open. I tie it at night. But I don't tie it, you know, double tie it uh, and so that I, I leave it open until I get it filled up. And I noticed that the top of the bag, that was the first thing I noticed, was the top of the bag was completely open. I thought, well, that's weird. I remember tying that up last night because I had put a gallon jug in there. And then I looked down on the ground, and here's where the high, and this is high strangeness if there ever was, there is a line of six items sitting on the ground. First was a gallon jug, and then there was two cups, plastic cups 
from Mojo's, which is the local coffee shop around here. And then there was a, looked like a, I think it was a plastic salsa. It was just a clear plastic uh, uh, container. And I think it was originally a salsa container. And then there was a lid from another item in there that was laying on the ground. Just this purple lid. And and there was like these six items lined up there in, in a perfect row. I mean, it, weren't, it wasn't like they were just like just thrown out there or just sat anywhere out there in front of the bag. No, they were in a perfect little line. You know, and I, oh, God, I'm sorry. I told Tom, I should have took a picture. <laughs> but it was one of those things I kind of, I looked at that. Then I, the, my first thought was I looked around. <laughs> and and he asked me later, did I look for tracks? Well, right there, it's pretty, the ground is pretty hard right there. And I don't, uh, I, you know, I didn't look for tracks. And I, I guess I should have walked all around there and looked for tracks. But you know what I did? It was still 7.30 in the morning. I put the stuff in the bag, tied the bag up, and I walked in the house. <laughs> you know, we talk about parallel behaviors. When we interviewed Jerry Klein, uh, and I think Jerry's, Jerry's in Ohio, isn't he, Tom? Yeah, he's, he's in Ohio. So he was, he was out, uh, you know, kind of prospecting and, and enjoying kind of a relaxing uh, few days. And he had a little recycled bag next to his RV. Or a container, not a bag, but it was a container had where he put his you know cans and plastics in while he was out there. And one morning, I believe it was, he went out there and saw that this was disturbed, and the objects were taken out and placed in a line. And when he followed the line, he came on one of the creatures. He came right up to it. So, really interesting, almost identical parallel. Yeah. yeah that's- that is so bizarre. There's your six items. I, I know the answer. What's that? I know what it is. Uh-oh. What? <laughs> 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 they're, they're watching us, and, and you probably had a couple of young ones, and they wanted to play house. That's what it was. Well, no, here's, here's you know, I just, I just thought of a connection, Tom, between the Bigfoot and the owl noises and, and the recycling. See, it's remember the old commercials, Woodsy Owl? You know, give a hoot, don't pollute. <laughs> <laughs> that's it we've solved it uh, yeah see All right. there we go with that we're out of time we'll leave uh, on that note <laughs> so everyone stay tuned for the next segment and if you haven't heard the midweek show we post that on Wednesdays we call it Bigfoot in History you know take a listen it's different than what we do with this show so folks stay tuned for the next segment In Bigfoot history, near Nia Bay, Washington, 1962 or 63, a Nia Bay man wrote to Roger Patterson that a serviceman driving at night to Nia Bay from a radar installation almost ran into a huge beast that was definitely human-like, walked on two legs, and was covered with hair. When his lights hit this creature, it bounded across the road in one stride and up a steep slope about 20 feet high in another leap. Welcome. This is a series of stories being brought to you by William Jevning.
and being narrated by Jim Sower. Story number one, Australia, Bigfoot spotted in bush near Sydney, April 15, 2009. Australian News, April 2009, two backpackers on a year-long trip around Australia got the fright of their life last week while they were out trekking in the bushland in the vicinity of the township of Lura, not far from the well-known Katoomba landmark, the Three Sisters. It was early evening, and by the ladies' own admission, it was a bit late to be by themselves in the bush. Ingrid Schoen, 23, of Germany, and Addie Hansen, 22, of France, decided to head back into town when they heard the breaking of branches and loud footsteps heading towards them. Ingrid turned on her torch to light the track in front of them, and at this point they both claimed to have seen what they now describe as Bigfoot charge away into the distance. Admittedly, we did not get a close look, but we think that what we saw looked like the American Bigfoot, basically covered in hair and about two meters tall. It definitely had no clothes on and was not human. Ingrid told all-news web reporter Jaden Cassidy, we were petrified and almost lost our way back in our nervous state, Ingrid commented. The Blue Mountains is believed to be the home of a creature known as the Yowie, basically Australia's version of Bigfoot or the Yeti. There have been many recent sightings there. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, local Aboriginal tribes were certain of its existence. Aboriginal communities still living in the Blue Mountains, along with some other locals, continue to believe that the Yowie might be out there in the vast expanses of Australia's Great Dividing Range. This is the end of the first story. Story number two. BBC's Online. So Weird, Lionel's Guide. The Ape Type. They're all big, they're all hairy, they're all colossal cocktails of man, ape, bear, and occasionally goat, but they're all over the world. Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America, Yaren in China, Nguoi Rung in Vietnam, and the Yowie in Australia. Most of the time they're more frightened by the spotters, but they're not always harmless. An adventurer named Bauman was working as a trapper with a friend in the Wisdom River area in Montana. One night, when Bauman got back to camp, he found his friend dead. There were huge bite marks on the body, and the man's neck had been snapped by something with far more than normal human strength. A few days before the tragedy, they had both seen a strange humanoid creature, which they reckoned was about seven feet tall and this story was reported by President Roosevelt, so it must be true. American presidents don't lie, do they? In 1924, Al Ostman claimed to have been abducted by a whole tribe of Sasquatch. He was asleep in his sleeping bag when one of them picked him up like a rag doll and carried him away. As the creatures made no attempt to harm him, Ostman, who always kept a loaded rifle by his side when he was out alone in the wilds, did not wish to harm them. He finally got away by giving snuff to their leader and running away while the Sasquatch chief was sneezing uncontrollably. Many disturbing reports of the Yeti, or Abominable Snowman, 
a close cousin to Sasquatch and Bigfoot, have come in over the years from the Himalayas. In 1974, on a plateau 14,000 feet up near Mount Everest, 19-year-old Lakpa Sherpani was knocked unconscious as she tried unsuccessfully to defend her yaks from a yeti which killed several of them by twisting their horns until their necks were broken. This story comes to us from BBC Online. The end of story number two. Story number three. Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. Nathan, the Brush Man, by Velma Wallace. Sasquatch, or something like it, appears in the legends of the northern Athabascan Gwich'in people as Nathan, the Brushman. Is he a myth, a monster, or a lonely man? The Nathan was held in fear and admiration, although none could swear he ever actually saw one. If someone dared say that they did, people laughed, yet some believed. It is said that the Nathan, also called Brushmen, were men who were ostracized from the group for disobeying tribal rules. The rules of the wandering Gwich'in bands were simple and stern because survival was their main concern. The rules helped the people to survive their harsh environment, but they also were social requirements meant to keep peace. Some men, and occasionally women, did not abide by the rules, so the band leaders would ask the person to leave. The condemned person usually tried to prove he could survive without the group, but isolation taught otherwise. Physically, survival was possible. Emotionally, the human craved companionship. The rejected person would find himself slipping into the guise of a Nathan. He would hover behind bushes, spying on people. If he became lonely, he tried to kidnap a woman and sometimes succeeded. Others saw brushmen as non-human, but with human appearances and magical powers. For instance, the brushman possesses the ability to use mind power to lull you to sleep and then steal your loved one. Even after contact with Western culture, the Gwich'in people believe that the brushman still exists. In the late 1800s, an infant was said to have been stolen by a Nathan and later returned. Although the Nathan was feared, he also was romanticized. As a teenager, my mother often wished that she were stolen by a Nathan. My husband told of a time when he hunted above the mountains in Chandelar country, and large, dark, and dressed in skins, uh, this thing appeared from the woods and knelt down to drink water from a stream. Geoffrey called out to him, wanting to believe he was just another hunter, the startled man looked up and then ran away. Jeffrey told others, and they laughed, for what was the typical response to anyone who said that they saw a Nathan? Despite people's skepticism, not long ago a sensible couple traveling down the Porcupine River spotted a man walking alongside the beach. When he heard their motor, the man disappeared into the willows. The couple searched the area, but found only moccasin tracks. Later that fall, in Fort Yukon, meat and fish that hung on drying racks were missing. People said it couldn't have been dogs because there would have been tracks, and camp robbers 
gray jays, blue jays, and stellar jays always leave a mess. Again, even in modern times, the myth of the brush man sends excitement through the heart of small Alaskan communities. Perhaps the spirits of those long ostracized and rebellious individuals still do roam the land, searching for food and companionship. Copyright Alaska Magazine, September 1998, Volume 64, Number 7. That is the end of story number three. The Legend of Ohio's Orange-Eyed Creature, 1959. Old Orange Eyes was allegedly an 11-foot-tall, 1,000-pound Bigfoot creature that is said to live in central Ohio, on a lonely road called Lover's Lane where it stalked teenagers. The Orange Eyes creature first gained notice on March 28, 1959, when three teenagers observed a huge, hairy, orange monster rise from a ground fog at Charles Mill Reservoir, near Mansfield. Then, four years later, the beast appeared again, and this time it was witnessed by several people. Scientists were not sure where this creature lived, but it is assumed that the beast might have lived in a tunnel in Cleveland's Riverside, where it lived in peace for more than 25 years. Then, suddenly, in the 1940s and 1960s, highway construction destroyed the tunnel that Orange Eyes was alleged to be living in forcing the creature to live in a stretch of forest behind the Cleveland Zoo. Finally, a group of teenagers invaded the creature's habitat on April 22, 1968, and chased the creature armed with baseball bats, flashlights, and ropes, and went into the forest to try to capture and kill the creature, but they found no sign of the beast. June 1991, Old Orange Eyes appeared again, and this time the bees ran past two people fishing near Willis Creek, scaring the daylights out of them before disappearing. It was said the way to find this creature was on Ruggles Road near Blue Ridge, and if the creature was there, it would appear curious. Witnesses of the orange-eyed creature say that there is no monster, just some crazy hermit or trademark feature by nailing two round orange bike reflectors to a stick, or teenagers using Christmas tree lights, flashlights, to frighten one another. Courtesy, Andy Ramirez, Saturday, June 23, 2001, 10.38 a.m. This sounds like an urban legend, and it may also remind you of the Big Head Report from Richland County, Ohio, Vintage 1978. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Biddeford, York County, Maine, 1951. Suddenly, there he was, less than 15 feet in front of me. I am a 73-year-old man, and when I was 13 years old, I was on a holiday with my parents in Biddeford, Maine. It was a sunny, chilly day in April. I told my parents I was going for a walk along an estuary leading out to the ocean. When I came close to the flowing, chilly water, I saw a winding stream with sandbanks rising five feet in front of me. 
As I climbed up on one bank to look at the water a few feet in front of me, I saw a figure floating on his back, coming in with the tide. I'd say we spotted each other at about the same time, so I had just stepped up onto this dune from the land side. It was four or five steps, and I was on top of the dune, looked down at the water, and there he was, right in front of me. I can easily think about that moment, and again, I had no idea what I was looking at. I could see him so clearly, even his hairs as they swirled around his body. Well, mind you, at this time of my life, I had never heard of Yetis, Bigfoot, or never read about them. I never knew they existed in my thirteen years of age. Uh, this figure had the shape of a man with grayish hair and a hairless, pinkish to reddish face with no hair on it. Although I had read about Bigfoot through those years, I never put the two together. I guess one reason was that this guy had grayish-white hair, and I guess I didn't really think he was a Bigfoot. This guy had no breasts that I could see. Only while reading about Bigfoot recently did I notice that an occasional you'd see a whitish-gray one that would appear. So I got excited, and I had to write about it. The rest of his body had hair which moved as the water washed around him. He was on his back and floating in head first. He was no more than twelve to fifteen feet from me. I didn't move one bit as I gazed at him. His arms were to his side, and he lay motionless, but the incoming water was moving him along this creek at about four miles an hour. His body was barely awash, meaning that he was floating on top of the water with about half an inch of water covering his body, except for his pinkish-reddish face, which floated out of the water, I'd say from the front of where his ears should be to the front of his face. His nose, eyes, and mouth were out of the water. His facial skin looked wrinkly, not a lot, but he had mostly deep wrinkles on his face. Another thing about his face, the skin was bare, not even a whisker, no hair at all on his face. One more thing, the amount of his facial reddishness was like a sunburnt man. He showed no facial expression. Only his eyes moved over to me, and that was a little scary to me, but I stood there and stared back at him. I don't think I shared any expression. About the hair, it was about six to eight inches long and loosely floated around his body. It looked like it was the consistency or thickness of a golden retriever dog not thick and matted like other Bigfoot reports that I've read. I did notice his knees, hairy, slightly bent up, and still just below the water. While I was watching him, I saw no effort to move his hands or arms. He easily drifted in without any body, arm, or hand movement that I noticed. I'll never forget how I felt during the brief time that I saw him. It was a deep soul connection that overcame me, I felt peaceful and calm during the whole time. I think I said this guy was about twelve feet from me, maybe even a little closer. I want to go back to where I saw him some day in hopes of connecting with him or his children. I thought it would be hard for me to walk down the little dune and follow him, and I don't think I would have since the dune led into the water, and I thought I would have gotten wet. Besides, I was so startled I could only look at him. Having never heard of these creatures, 
I ran through my mind every creature I had ever seen, and this didn't exist in my vocabulary of known animals. I was always interested in animals. I never ever saw anything like this. As I was gazing at him, he looked up at me, and we had an eye-to-eye -eye connection, which only lasted a few seconds. I can't say for sure, but I think his eyes were grayish-blue in color. He felt kindly to me, not startled, and I wasn't either. I will never forget this moment, and it's clear as a bell to me after sixty-three years. I ran home to my parents, who were in a house along the beach, and excitedly told them what I had seen. Well, they didn't pay much attention to me and thought I had seen a seal or a walrus or some other sea animal. I never thought much about it, and kind of forgot it after many years. Later I began to hear and read about Bigfoot, and never put what I saw together. The reason was that all reports I have read these creatures were never grayish-white, and they weren't very tall. This guy was only about six feet in length, no more, but finally, about ten years ago, I realized that this might have been a yeti. What else could it be? I feel a deep connection to the Bigfoot, and my experience will always be with me. I keep my sighting almost to myself, but though the, what I saw might help in some small way, I, uh, you know, tell others to help understand what's going on, you may publish this and use as you wish. You may use my first name, but please keep my contact information private. B.J. from Maine. Sunday, March 13th, 2011. That's the end of story number four. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Grand Marais, Cook County, Minnesota, 2011. Snowmobiler spot Sasquatch in Superior National Forest. My sighting occurred in Minnesota. The nearest city to the sightings is Grand Marais, Minnesota. The sighting was in the Superior National Forest on January 29, 2011, around 3.30 in the afternoon. The area has many lakes, and this sighting was near a tributary to one of the lakes. The nearest road to this area is Gunflint Trail. What I and my sister saw that day was incredible. We were snowmobiling in the back country of northern Minnesota when my family and I were approaching a downhill section of the trail we were on. There was a clearing on the hillside above us where there was a break in the trees. As I began my descent on the trail, I happened to look up and spotted something in the clearing about 200 yards above me. My sister and I were at the back of our group, so we both slowed to a stop to see what caught my attention. When we looked at what I saw, we observed a tall, man-like creature watching us. It stood there for about a minute, then reached up, grabbed a branch, and walked off into the trees. The creature we saw was maybe seven feet, and was dark brown in color, with darker areas around the face and chest area. It had long arms and a very human-like appearance, with a high forehead area. We grew up in this area and know the local wildlife extremely well. This is not a bear or moose. We have never seen anything like this before. My family has been somewhat skeptical about the sightings of these beings, so when we saw it, 
it really frightened us. Sorry, no photos, because I was on a snowmobile, and it is rather hard to carry a camera in an easily accessible place. We circled around and could see large barefoot tracks in the snow. The snow is so deep in Minnesota this year, so it was hard to get close enough to get any pictures of the tracks. But you could definitely tell that a two-legged creature passed through the area where we saw it. I wish I had more evidence, but unfortunately I never dreamed that I would ever see something like this, so it really stunned us. My sister doesn't want to go there again, but I would really like to go back in the summer to see if there's anything to be found. This definitely made me a believer in Sasquatch. We did not report it to any authorities for fear of being ridiculed. My sister and I wished to remain anonymous for this same reason but we would like the rest of our story to be shared so that others will know that they are not crazy if they see one of these creatures. Anonymous, in Grand Marais, Minnesota, February 2012. That's the end of story number one. Story number two. A story out of Siskiyou County, California, approximately 1996. My name is Mark Kennedy, and I have a good story. It happened about ten years ago while a crew of twelve, including myself, was working a contract for the Forest Service to clear a couple miles of wilderness trail. I believe it was our first night at this particular spot, which was an area in the north end of the Trinity Alps. It was about twenty-six miles into the wilderness zone of the Trinity Forest. Camp was about five miles off the road in a beautiful meadow with a small lake called Red Cap Lake. We were done with our second day of work on this particular trail. It was a trail that took you through the prayer rocks of the Hoopa and Yurok tribes. Being in the Trinity Alps, obviously, we were really high up. We started at about 5,000 feet and maybe went up another thousand. The trail was about 10 or 12 miles long and split about three miles south of Red Cap Lake. One trail took you down into one of the many gorgeous, secluded valleys in the Alps. The other took you to a point. Literally, the end of the trail was on a point that extended out quite a few feet from the true edge of the cliff. At that point, we were about 2,000 feet above the forest below us, so we were very remote. In the meadow, our first night there, we split into two groups trying to find the best camp spot really not hard to do. The meadow was just about twice the size of a football field. Half was all knee-high green grass. The entire west side of the meadow was a small lake. You could catch pan-sized trout all day long in that little lake. Now our meadow was off the main trail which rode the peaks of the mountains we were on. You walked down into this meadow from the north end and as you walked you got a bird's eye view of the entire area. At the south end of the meadow was an extremely rocky cliff that rose above the lake about 200 to 300 feet with the forest ending right at the edge at the top. So, now you understand the area a little as I tell this story. We were just finishing our nightly session to end the day around the campfire. Both campsites were at the south end of the grass near the rocks, not far from one another. Everybody had just grown quiet as we all were drifting off to sleep. Suddenly, there was this god-awful screaming, howling-like noise that echoed through the meadow to make it sound like the screaming was coming from all directions. 
and for what seemed to be forever the strange noise finally stopped and was followed up by one of the trees at the top of the rock cliff getting pushed off. I swear that tree must have hit every single rock that was in its path on the way down, and as it grew closer the more petrified I became due to its sounding like it was right on top of our camp. Finally the crashing noise came to a stop without ever landing on someone's tent. I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position and I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position and seeing the brightest shade of yellow I've ever seen. I think the others were too. Nobody wanted to come out of their tents, but everybody wanted the reassurance of the others. The rest of the night was uneventful. The next morning we were all around the campfire, sounding like a bunch of old biddies gossiping about the night before. We found the tree that came down. It was a full-grown fir. Must have been a full-sized tree when it started down the cliff. Wasn't much left of it when it got to the bottom. I have never heard that strange scream since, and have been back in the woods plenty. None of us could come up with a reasonable explanation for what we heard that night. Shortly thereafter, we were joined by a guide who was Native American. This guide informed us that the prayer rocks I wrote about earlier are on sacred ground, and it is believed that there is a Bigfoot protecting that whole mountain. The guide also went on to say that the noise has been heard before, but in other places. We discussed how big of a creature it would take to push over a full-grown pine or fir tree. We know it wasn't a bear, unless bears are coming up with horrifying new screams. So, it wasn't a bear, but it had to be big and strong. The tree circumference was about four, maybe five feet. And, we concluded from memory of seeing the tree, it was about fifty feet tall and very much alive. At least the parts we were looking at came from a live tree. Nobody would climb up the easy rocky cliff to see where the tree used to be located, so I couldn't tell you if there were any footprints or not. But I can say that this story was backburnered in my memory to tell at the campfires for entertainment. It became very interesting when I heard one of many documentaries about this screaming, howling-like noise that the Bigfoot has been known to make. When I heard that, all of a sudden, that night needed to be shared. This is the end of this story. Story number four. August 2007, Lake Tahoe, Placer County, California. Tracks found 18 inches long, 9 inches wide. I was camping last August with my nephew north of Lake Tahoe. We had been in a moderately developed campground, Crystal Peak Overlook, about 20 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, where we live. There, my nephew made friends with another little boy, and I started talking to the other little boy's grandmother. She told me how her husband and son had found these Bigfoot prints that May along a creek above another nearby campground, Dog Valley Creek. They reported that in one print they could even make out separate tow tracks. They told a ranger who gave them some plastic tape to mark the spot. That got me curious, so we moved camp the next day to Dog Valley, a primitive campground. This is on the dry side of the Sierras at the Timberline, which is about 6,000 feet. Generally, the granite soil of the Sierras doesn't sustain much vegetation, but 
In this area, several small streams converged to make a marshy pasture with a lot of biodiversity. We hiked up the creek that flows through the campground. It was a moderately steep climb. About a hundred yards up, I spotted the bits of tape tied to sticks stuck in the ground in a particularly thick patch of trees. The forest floor was covered with pine needles, but you could still see the depressed area of the prints sunk in the soil beneath leaves. In August, when we were there, even I, at over 200 pounds, didn't leave a footprint. But perhaps in May, in the deep shade, the ground had been muddy enough to take tracks. There were three prints marked out, but only one was still the outline of a full foot. However, I could no longer make out any separate toe impressions. It was about 18 inches long and nearly 9 inches wide. All the pictures I took came out pretty useless. Only the one where I put my bare foot in the tracks gives you any idea of size. The area is about 20 miles from human habitation, but gets maybe a dozen people a week off-roading during June through October. The roads to the area aren't cleared in the winter, so there's hardly anyone there until May. The area is in the rain shadow of the high Sierra Peak, so even in winter there's probably less than a couple feet of snow, and it has lots of springs. I'd guess this area would have edible vegetation, if not all winter, at least very early in the spring. This area is not too far south of the Cascade Range, where there are more Sasquatch reports, and might be the sort of area a species might migrate south to for the winter. My nephew asked if the footprint could be made by a really tall person, like a basketball player, so when I got home I did some net research. 18 inches would be a shoe size. 26. Many, many E's. The nearest I found was a guy 8 foot 4 who wears a size 25. There are less than a dozen people in the USA that tall, and most use canes or crutches and wouldn't be up to a barefoot hike in the mountains. I don't have a scanner, but I'll see if I can find a friend to scan the one halfway decent photo to you. Yes, I did have a camera, but it was a little 35 millimeter disposable, and the footprint I found is hard to make out, and the markings on the measuring tape I had in one picture can't even be made out at all. There may have been three prints, but only one was clear enough to be a definite footprint. Gina Bagney, date Friday, 1st of February, 2008. That's the end of story number four. This next story is entitled Wichita County, Arkansas, 1940s. I am 75 years old. I was raised in the county of Wichita in Arkansas. We used to hear Bigfoots during winter time. Dad says they were panthers. Till Dad and his brother saw five Bigfoots in a pool of water at a river bottom. My uncle never got over that shock and would not go into the woods again. Dad said they were ugly, and the females had breasts that hung down to here, pointing to his body. I recall laying in that broad shack. It was cold listening to them scream and scream, and they did a lot. When I was all of five years old, my dad was out running trapline and doing some farming in the summertime. 
It was at this time that our canned goods began to go missing from our smokehouse. One time, whole smoked ham disappeared. We could not figure out who was taking the food. My dad told mother that he thought someone or something was following him when he was out running his trap lines. One day he spotted someone. The little fellow was about four and a half feet tall with hair all over him. It also had a hump back and was very ugly in the face which had facial hair. Dad began talking to it and leaving food for the little fellow. It wasn't long before when my dad would go into the woods and holler, the little guy would suddenly appear. We named him Little Sam, which was a name my grandpa had. Nobody knew about Little Sam outside of our family. All those years, Dad was in touch with Little Sam. I only saw him two times in my childhood. After I got married and moved to Oklahoma, my mother wrote me and told me about Dad and Little Sam, saying that they had not seen Little Sam in some time, but they went looking for him and found him dead. When I was reading the letter, I started to cry. It was very sad. Little Sam never uttered a word that I heard about, but he grunted. This is the end of story number five. This is story number six. Wild Man in McHenry County, Velva, North Dakota, 1908. The Stevens Point Journal, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Saturday, February 16th. 1908. Captured a Wild Man. Curious find recently made at Velva, North Dakota. The journal is in receipt of a clipping from a Velva, North Dakota paper from J. Thomas, who is formerly a resident of Keene, a son of Mrs. John Thomas, who still lives at Keene. It relates to the discovery of an alleged wild man near Velva, not far from Mr. Thomas's home. It is stated, for three years there have been rumors of this wild man being seen by persons of veracity, but he had never been encountered at close range until a few days ago, when two cattlemen who were out hunting suddenly came upon him face to face as he emerged from a thicket of brush. One of them succeeded in throwing a lasso around him, and before he could escape, he was dragged to a tree and bound round and round with the lasso. Later he was bound hand and foot and carried to town on a dray, where he was imprisoned in a basement. His only clothing was a loin girdle of sheepskin tied with binder twine. He had not been shaved or had a haircut in years, and being a man of an extremely hairy variety, he presented a very grotesque and wild appearance. His eye-teeth are reported to be unnaturally elongated in the form of tusks. He refused to talk or eat anything, but drank water like a horse, half a pail at a time. The singular part of it is that this man has always been seen within two miles of the village of Velva. This is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Montgomery County, Arkansas, June 2008. 
On May 26, 2008, while the writer was in Clark County, Alabama, with area researchers, information was received by telephone from C.K., an Arkansas RFP research project investigator, that a married couple in the rural Montgomery County, Arkansas, had found evidence and had heard sounds that indicated more than one reclusive forest primate was foraging on their property at night. That information had been submitted to C.K. by the adult son of the woman who is joint owner and resident of the property. On June 7, 2008, C.K. and the property owner's son and the writer drove to the site and met with the couple. We arrived about 3 o'clock p.m. and left shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. The couple are in their late 40s and both have daytime employment in Hot Springs. They have purchased a 16-acre tract of land in Montgomery County and plan to build a home on it later. The north side of the property slopes to a small spring-fed creek. That hillside and the creek bottoms below are densely forested with various hardwoods, pine, and cedar. The underbrush has been cleared from the area of the planned home site. Along the creek there is a very thick undergrowth of vines and brush. The land south of the creek was at one time cultivated, but it is now overgrown in brush, vines, and small trees through which trails have been cut with a bush hog. Throughout the property there is a prolific growth of muscandine, summer grape, and blackberry vines. There are at least two pear trees in the old cultivated area, although the one seen by the writer appears to be ornamental Bradford pear. A neighbor told them that he had gathered pears from one of the trees. Earlier this year, the owners obtained utilities on the property, and in late February or early March, they opened a driveway through the timber on the north portion of the property. In late February of this year, they purchased a new travel trailer and installed it about 75 yards from the county road that is the northern boundary of the property. General Information About the Area the actual location of the property is not disclosed at the owner's request. The property is within two miles of a river, which is a popular stream for canoeing and wade fishing. The site is within the foothills of the relatively small but rugged Caddo Mountains, which adjoin the southern flank of the Wichita Mountains. The area contains a large population of deer, turkey, and raccoon. The area has some cougar and no doubt many bobcat. A large male cougar was reportedly killed within one half mile of the property a short time ago. During this initial visit to the site, the writer noted a very fresh cougar track in the dust alongside the county road near the home where a wide, well-used game trail crosses the county road. While the area is expected to contain all the other small animals and birds common to this part of the state, it was surprising that no coyote sign was seen around the property, and when asked, the owner said they had never heard coyotes in the area. Summary of Events After moving into the travel trailer, the owners built a wooden porch patio underneath the trailer's retractable awning. While neither of the residents are hunters, and neither own a firearm, they are both avid bird and animal watchers. They have installed feeders for birds and began putting out dog food and scraps for the raccoons. For some time the couple had been spreading corn on the ground 
in a spot in the woods in front, east of the trailer, and at another location on the opposite side of the trailer as food for the deer. Sometime after they started putting out corn for the deer, they found a carcass of a deer near the west side feeding area. The witnesses stated that one of the deer's front legs and its head had been torn off. The head was found a few yards away, but the leg was partially eaten nearby. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and much of its hind quarters had been eaten before the carcass was found. They stated the deer's body cavity and stomach had been torn open, and the internal organs had been removed. There was undigested corn and corn mush inside the body cavity and spilled outside the carcass. When the carcass was again viewed the next day, they saw fresh blood and an exposed shoulder blade which indicated something had fed on the carcass overnight. A week or so later, another deer carcass was found at the other baiting site in front of the trailer. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and the carcass torn open and partially consumed. Shortly after finding the last deer carcass, the couple stopped putting out corn because they thought a cougar was ambushing the deer at the baiting locations. A day or two later, the couple found an injured dog lying beside the porch early one morning. They don't own a dog. When they stepped outside, the dog managed to get up and walk away, but there was a large bloody area on the ground where it had been lying. Shortly after seeing the injured dog, they found out that another dog, a Rottweiler weighing close to 200 pounds and belonging to the neighbor, had been attacked or otherwise injured. Something had torn off one of that dog's back legs. According to the couple, the dog somehow managed to return to his owner's home and still was alive. The couple said that now the large dog usually just stays on the porch and will no longer leave the owner's yard. Investigators note, when C.K. and the woman's son and this writer were leaving the couple's home site and driving through the woods road toward the county road the night of the initial meeting, C.K., who was sitting in the front passenger seat, told me there was a deer in the woods on my side of the vehicle. I stopped and saw an animal that I at first thought was a coyote moving through the woods. As I entered a more open spot, we saw that it was a large dog. We then drove away. The next night, about 8.30 p.m., the property owner called to tell me that when he went outside early that morning, he found a dog badly injured at the old baiting site east of the trailer. He said that it appeared the dog's back or its hips had been broken. He said at the time that he did not think that the dog would survive, although he said the dog managed to drag itself away the next morning. From his description of the dog, it was the same one that the three of us had seen the night before. Shortly after finding the deer carcasses, the husband spoke to a neighbor about any strange things that had occurred on the neighbor's property. The neighbor reportedly told him that five of his sheep had been killed and ripped apart inside an enclosure. When asked what he thought had killed the sheep, the neighbor said he thought it was dogs because he found some type of terrier inside the enclosure when he found the dead sheep. The couple stated that they had often sat outside on the patio porch at night and early in the morning during the week. He arises about 4.30 a.m. on weekdays to make coffee, and she joins him outside for a few minutes later. They both leave for work about 5 a.m. 
They stated that on many occasions when they stepped outside before daylight, they would hear the sounds of something crashing through the woods and brush near the trailer. They assumed it was deer bounding away, although they thought it was odd that deer would make such noise leaving the area. They said that on several occasions they had heard loud, ape, or monkey-like sounds from the adjoining woods while sitting outside late in the evening and at night. Recently it became apparent to them that at times the sounds were being made by more than one animal. A few weeks ago, a relative found a very large, about 18 inches long, track in a fire ant hill near the creek. The residents found another such track in one of their small vegetable gardens located northeast of the trailer. On the day of this initial visit, the writer observed two recently made tracks of about the same approximate size in the leaves and soil west of the trailer. The property owners also reported that some of the suet blocks used to feed birds were torn down and removed. They supposed that raccoons had taken the food, even though the couple thought they had suspended the blocks out of the reach of those animals. The husband began using wire to secure the door of the wire suet baskets so that raccoons could not open them if they managed to get them. Although the wife stated she could not open the baskets with her hands after her husband wired them shut, Something continued to tear the baskets down and open them to obtain and consume the suet blocks. Recently, the couple began putting up hummingbird feeders. Two of the feeders are small, but one holds about a quart of sugared water. A few nights ago, when the large feeder was nearly full, something reached the feeder and drank the entire contents except for some spillage that coated the outside surface of the container. The feeder was elevated and suspended away from a tree trunk, on an L bracket. Because of the position of the container and its capacity, the couple thinks it is unlikely that raccoons emptied it, although they concede that a raccoon might have been responsible. Other details. While completing this initial report, the writer telephoned the reporting witnesses at 8.40 p.m. on June 10th to ask about a few details. After clarifying the details, the husband asked if he could pose a question to me. When I told him that, of course, he could, he asked if I had ever heard whooping-type sounds, which he began to imitate over the phone. The sounds he made were nearly identical to the whooping sounds attributed to the reclusive forest primates. When I told him the possible source of the sounds, he said that both he and his wife had heard those sounds about twenty minutes earlier, coming from the opposite side of the creek and downstream. After some discussion, he said that he might go onto the porch and make those sounds to see what would happen. I advised him to be extra careful because the animals might be much closer than when he heard them originally. This is the end of this collection of stories. Thank you for listening. My name is Martin Elliott. The incident occurred when I was about 10 or 11 years old so in 1972 or 1973. At the time, I lived in Puyallup, Washington, in the South Hill area, Shaw Road, near a housing development called Forest Green. When this occurred, myself, my stepbrother, and a neighborhood friend whose name I can't remember, we were just out playing in the woods. My friend, my stepbrother, and myself were playing in an area off of a dirt road approximately half a mile off of Shaw Road near the Kate Dairy Farm Pasture. 
We went up into this dirt road about a half mile up and went into some trees that we had an area that we liked to consider our camp that had some downed trees and it wasn't far off the road. We were sitting there, just as kids do, you know, playing and stuff, and uh, we heard a sound that sounded to myself like a lady screaming or a baby, you know, cry out. It was just one loud cry. That was it. We talked about it and we thought, what was that? And the friend that was with us said, well, maybe it was a horse from the pasture. I said, that doesn't sound like a horse. Well, maybe two or three minutes later, we got this smell started coming around us. And it smelled like, you know, burnt match heads or rotten eggs. And we couldn't really figure out what was going on. And we were still sitting there and towards the roadside near the trees that we were at, about seven to eight feet into the trees, the tree limbs pushed aside. And there, standing before us, was a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch. We basically just froze and stared at it for just like, I mean, it seemed like forever. But I know that it was about probably 30 seconds before we panicked and took off running. All three of us ran as fast as we could back to our house. He ran back to his house, and me and my stepbrother ran back to our house. After that, we had told our parents about it, and we were pretty panic-stricken about it. We told our parents about it, and my mom at the time worked at the Daffodil Bowling Alley in Puyallup, and she and my stepfather were talking at the coffee shop about the incident and were telling their friends. A couple of gentlemen walked up and said, Excuse me, we are from the University of Oregon. We are here in town doing some Bigfoot research, and would you feel okay with us coming and interviewing your son? They said, Sure, no problem. They came up to our house, and we sat at the dining room table where they basically interviewed me about the situation, about what had happened, showed me some sketches, and asked me if this is what it looked like or if that is what it looked like, had me describe the scent, and had me listen to tape recordings, and said, well, did it sound like this tape recording or like that tape recording? And so they did a pretty extensive interview. They felt at the time that we were not pranking them, so that was the extent of it. If I can describe the best description I have for the creature that I saw, he or she or it was, I would say, seven and a half to eight feet tall. It had a brown-black hair that was probably three to four inches long, covering, you know, its whole body except for its hands. And I really didn't look at its feet. I just saw its hands because of the way it held the branches back. Its face was a kind of cross between an Aboriginal Australian and a gorilla. That's the easiest way I can describe it. It made no attempt at all to chase us or anything. It just watched us. It just looked at us. So basically, that's my story. It's been a situation where I talked about it when I was a kid. Everybody thought I was an idiot, you know, thought I was crazy, so it was something that, through most of my life, I really don't tell anybody about. It's not something that I ever really tell anyone. But at the time, around that area, after our sighting, there was quite a bit of activity in the Puyallup area. And so I hope this is helpful to you, and feel free to contact me if you have any more questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.